and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson and I'm joined as ever by Mr. Ben Mitchell. Hello, Ben. Hello. How are you, Ben? I'm uh, uh, droovy, jazzy, funky, raring to go. Let's do it, yo. That was very direct. Yeah. <laughs> it's the new assertive me, which is staggeringly similar to the old assertive me, where I basically just act like a blowhard. It's great. It's done me well since I was 14. And it continues to serve you well today. Certainly does. So what do we have on this episode of the Squiggly Podcast? Let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what do we have, Ben? Well, it's another rollicking podcast full of animation-y delight and wonderment and all sorts of other things to fill your ears with. We have a chat with one of my uh, all-time favorite modern animators, a guy called Adam Elliott, Australian guy, directed the wonderful film Mary and Max, the Oscar-winning film Harvey Crumpet, and he will be at this year's Bradford Animation Festival that starts this week. We also have a chat with the directors, plural, ooh, of Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2, Cody Cameron and Chris Pern. Oh, yeah. And to round it off, a chat with Dan Scanlon, director of another blockbuster animation hit Monsters University which comes out on DVD this week it's all very very relevant stuff all very up to the minute quite the tight ship we run here I'm sure you'll agree well I'll shut up so I can talk some more on with the podcast (laughs) so this week is Bradford the Bradford Animation Festival my first year attending the Bradford animation but uh, Steve I understand you're something of a veteran I certainly am sorry can I just apologize for the awfully affected way I just (laughs) asked that question (laughs) yes gee Steve I hear tell that you're all right sorry you volunteer at the Bradford animation festival you have done for, for from what I gather quite a few years yes Yes, I've been a volunteer since about 2008, but I've been attending the festival since about, well, 2002, uh, when I was a young, eager, sort of um, college student. Mm. Uh, My first year, it was uh, was the first, going to animation festivals are so important. And I think it's like the first animation festival you go to, unless you go to a really terrible one, you will always hold that with a certain amount of affection, Mm. you know. And and Bradford is the one for me. So you're in for a treat this year. You really are. No, yes, I'm looking forward to my first ever Bradford. It uh, should be good. They know their stuff. They get some uh, some pretty damn decent people on the uh, on the lineup. Not least of which being you and me. Yes. How is that for self-serving? <laughs> Very. We will be there. We will be mainly, of course, uh, indulging the festival activities, watching the wonderful short films. Some of them are films that uh, I'm familiar with, and, well, we're both familiar with, from Manassey and various other festivals over the course of the year. Strong stuff, worth the price of admission, I dare say. And, uh, of course, uh, lots of great events lined up. Uh, Joanna Quinn, Michaela Pavlatova, Adam Elliott, Dave McKean. McKinnon and Saunders, Lee Hardcastle. Curtis Joblin, Alan Gilby's Writer's Masterclass. There's everybody there. Man alive, what you're missing out on if you don't go. We will also be there, weighing in and bothering everyone. Uh, We've got some uh, quite nifty little events coming up, haven't we? I mean, uh, uh, Friday, we've got the quiz, uh, which I uh, hosted last year. I had so much fun, they decided to ask me back. 
But this year I'll be hosting with uh, with yourself, Ben. So we've got a a fiendishly fun uh, evening of quiz questions and some fabulous prizes to give away. That's free as well. So if you're in um, in the sort of Bradford area or, or in um, uh, as part of Bath, you, you know you don't need a ticket for that. You just need to turn up. So you know it should be fun. Yes, it should be a a hoot and a holler. If I may be so bold. On Thursday, as well, we will have a repeat screening of the animation showcase that we uh, debuted as part of the Encounters Film Festival Fringe events. And it went down very well in Bristol. Hopefully it will go down equally well in Bradford. It has some wonderful filmmakers, some wonderful short films that aren't necessarily as active on the festival circuit. A lot of uh, uh, major players in the online world and uh, just people that uh, friends of Squiggly and uh, do very good work. And uh, I think every day from Wednesday on, uh, the 13th, we'll be informally chatting with the filmmakers. Uh, so if there's anything you want to talk to them about, drop in again. I think it's all in the same location. The National Media Museum's Media Café. So hopefully we will see you there. We've talked about Bradford in the past. I think last year we talked about, uh, well, last year's edition, and it sounded uh, pretty interesting, pretty exciting. I had some pretty good guests there. Um, and they've, they've always been quite good with their guests, haven't they? They've always had some pretty enviable uh, uh, people on the old roster. Well, yeah. Um, the, Richard Williams, uh, Nick Park, Ray Harryhausen. It just sort of, you know, these sort of big names have all been to, to Bradford. And in recent years, you've had the kind of um, the Pixar animators there. Um, uh, Andy Schmitz was there a couple of years ago. And uh, then you have the, the guys from Leica as well. And it, it's a great festival. It's a, it's a great festival. And obviously this year, it's the 20th anniversary. So, you know, the festival's been going... 20 years so it's a big event for them i'm quite excited. a couple of people there I'm, I'm i'm really looking forward to seeing in person you know, the lineup includes uh joanna quinn who was uh well i don't think she needs any introduction to the the british animation crowd michaela pavlatova who we've talked about quite a bit absolutely did that wonderful film tram and uh several others in the past uh Repet and others and adam elliott uh who i think is one of the more important animators like modern animators working today. I got this sense when I saw his um his early films now quite a long time ago that I was watching something quite special. It was very charming. It sort of had the the look of early Ardman, I would say. Not early early, but like sort of 90s Ardman mm -hmm. would be the closest sort of approximation, but with his own sort of design sensibility. And this was before Harvey Crumpet. This was the trilogy of films well, about family members, which I assume you've seen these. Yeah. Brother, cousin, uncle. Yeah, oh, they're, they're fantastic. I mean, uh, you're talking about the, the sort of visual aesthetics there. I think something that defines Adam Elliott as well is the storytelling and the stories. Mm. They are heartbreaking and they're hilarious. They're such a, such a complex blend and that sets him apart from... Uh, other filmmakers more so than than any kind of visual style because you know it's it's great if you can draw and if you're an animator who can draw a, a great character and everyone can get behind their character that's great but if you can tell a good story as well as Adam Elliot does you've nailed it really I mean there's so much about life in his films and a lot of stuff about life that people are uncomfortable to discuss I think people are way too hypersensitive about coming off a certain way 
And so it then affects the way they actually think about things. And there are lots of social issues in Adam Elliott films that are very important and should be discussed. And people don't talk about them because they're afraid of something. I'm not entirely sure what that is, whether it's that, you know, they'll they'll be perceived as uh, not sympathetic because apparently it's not sympathetic to actually treat different types of human beings equally, <laughs> give them the same degree of lampoon and satire and uh, affectionate, you know, humor, or not even necessarily that, represent that kind of thing fairly and realistically. There is this strange social contract, I guess, where you have to just pretend everything's okay, even when things are very clearly not okay. It's very counterproductive to the treatment of stuff like autism, of psychological disorders, depression, all sorts of, of different syndromes and different... And, you know, everyone's a little bit idiosyncratic, and then there are some people who need medication for it, and then there are some people who can just sort of get by and are at peace with their lot in life and conduct themselves in a way that's socially appropriate. Mm -hmm. But sometimes people do need a bit of conditioning to get to that. And on that journey, things can get very sad, and they can get hilarious, and they can get very dark and sort of bleak. And then, you know, on occasion, as with pretty much everything in life, all of that can then get lumped in together. So you get something that is all at once funny and really not funny. You're like, why am I laughing at this? When I felt that Adam Elliott's films captured those first three in particular so well was that ambivalent sort of in-the-moment reaction to something where, you know, there are these sort of cute claymation characters that lead very sad lives, and yet they're quite funny. There's a comedy of the the bleakness of the situation. <laughs> but it is coupled with this very authentic poignancy that when you see forced pathos does not work at all no you may as well be looking at paint swatches and i know because i've tried to force pathos <laughs> in some of my own stuff when i was younger and uh you know people know when you're trying to d d swindle them <laughs> it's when you stop trying that then it, things actually start to work authentically. Mm -hmm. And I think Adam Elliott's someone who probably never needed to try. I think he just had access to those sort of reserves, I think, of storytelling and just be honest. You know, not try and get a reaction, just be authentic. And then that gets the reaction on its own. Yeah, he, he, gives, he gives his opinion on, on things that happen. And his opinion is delivered through, through deadpan. You know, the kind of the matter of fact. But then at the end of his film, there's always the gut-wrenching reality that, that's kind of, you know, that the whole thing is um, so much more than just jokes. You know, I don't... They would always end in a, in a way that was quite touching. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I didn't feel that he would sort of, like, wait for the ending to then make it sad. That was the other thing that I think I really liked about the structure of his storytelling was there would be moments sort of throughout and, and more sort of near the end. I think um, Uncle in particular, mm -hmm. there's a, a moment and I'm very rarely moved by by anything. Very occasionally there'll be a film or something on TV where I'll get a little bit like, <gasps> you know, <laughs> Try, I don't, I don't want to tarnish the stoic manly image I'm sure the listeners have. But believe it or not, I do occasionally feel emotions <laughs> when the the story is constructed well enough. 
<laughs> well, it's, it's certainly not formulaic. You know, they're all they're full of surprises. I will say, though, that I don't know if it's the last moment in the film. I think it is. I think it's right before the credits come up. But in Mary and Max, when she looks up at the ceiling, that f***ing kicked me in the stomach. <laughs> and, that's, and that's actually not even sad, but it's like, oh, man, you know? And yeah. the music was perfectly chosen. And, like, again, music is a rough one because you, you do a bad job of picking your music for the poignant moment, and it will ruin it. Yeah. Like, any, like, American network television show, they lay it on so thick like uh, be with the plinkly pianos you know and the bad synth <laughs> string section the idea of watching like an ncis or a csi or an ascii or whatever the hell new show is out there now like and actually engaging with it emotionally is so ridiculous <laughs> because they put on so much effort to say okay be sad now <laughs> yeah all right we get it let me experience an actual emotion <laughs> and i think that you know different things can get different that moment out of different people because they're not trying for the sad moment it you can react to something because it reminds you of something personally or because for whatever reason things all kind of line up together and um just sort of work mm -hmm. have i ever told you by the way this is a bit of a sidetrack there's a simpsons believe it or not that actually kind of gets to me a bit mm -hmm. and i wouldn't say it makes me like cry but it does like, there is something that sort of hits me a little bit in my chest a bit, and I, I don't know why. I mean, there have been, like, sad episodes, like, back in the olden days, um, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, can, can we, can we uh, because I've got one as well, and sure. can we count down from three, and okay. then both say the episode title at the same time? Okay. Because I've got one that really sort of puts a lump in my throat as well. Well, we can do that now. Okay. Okay. So, three, two, one. Bart gets Tree House of Horror 5. Oh. <laughs> I was so sad when he cut off the cable and took away all the beer. <laughs> uh, what was your one again? Well, I'm not sorry. I was be I was being facile. <laughs> it's one little tile in the vast mosaic of my puckish adorableness. <laughs> but uh, what was your moment? The uh... Bart gets an F. Okay, and this is what uh, one you've been brought up a few times. It is, yeah. Is this the one that like has a really like unusual? atmosphere to it yeah as opposed to yeah yeah it was i think it's one of david silverman's first ones and but it's it is it is done more like a film than the actual simpsons movie was done you know the music's different the the angles and the whole they really threw everything at it and you know the whole emotion that because this particular simpsons episode was created back in a time when um it was all about bart simpson you had all the bart simpson hooky t-shirts and it was just like a little just this little turd going around being you know a little menace and everything and uh you know this is one of the one of the times that we really see the proper emotion as he doesn't want to be held back so by the way speaking of like the simpsons and and sad moments in the last episode of this humble podcast we kind of in a rather sort of macabre sense prophesized something although obviously it wasn't our intention edna krabappel uh marsha wallace who uh, uh played edna krabappel for well the whole run of the simpsons has now passed away which uh that's a downer. It certainly is. <laughs> We're going to have to be careful about who we talk about. I know. I mean, Jesus Christ, why couldn't we have talked about Rebecca Brooks? <laughs> Let's... If that's the power we have. <laughs> Let's talk about them now. Hang on. Didn't Ricky Gervais play a character in The Simpsons? 
it's not a shopping list bench. <laughs> it's not, it's, it's, I mean, it's quite tragic. Um, well, again, I think we, we, we brought it up last episode. The writing was on the wall. You could sort of tell she was, if, if not going to retire from show business, going to retire from life. She seemed very out of it. As many of the actors on the show do, they seem to have checked out. But, you know, she was an older woman and, uh, you know, life is life. And, uh, and and death is death and shame yeah terrible shame yeah, she had some lovely moments uh, Mrs. Cravaffle back in what I like to call the day yeah um, there's quite a tribute to her in one of the more recent episodes uh, where they you know how they usually have a chalk you know chalk gag at the beginning of every Simpsons episode I'm sure you might have seen that Ben I saw a still yeah well that wasn't a mock up that was from the actual episode and it said we're really going to miss you, Miss uh, Mrs. K. And then right at the end of the episode, uh, they just had like a Marsha Wallace and then they had a date of birth and date of death. And it was just uh, Edna Crabapple just doing a trademark laugh for like, you know, one thing, which I thought was very kind of, um, very kind of classy and, and poignant and, uh, you know, trumps what we're doing now. It's like I was saying before, it gets the point across in a way that isn't like laying it on too thick. Everyone gets the situation and and remembers the good times so uh uh yes yeah asalu you know i saw her in one thing the only thing i think that i i know her from that wasn't the simpsons it was this very bizarre show that you may have seen it was by trey and matt the uh south park guys Mm -hmm. about the bush administration and it was called that's my bush (laughs) and uh it was like a sitcom like a kind of um married with children type sitcom almost about George W. Bush's presidential run, but the White House was like the sort of the sitcom house, and he has the wacky neighbor, and you know, he's henpecked by his wife. And it's all sort of played by people impersonating actual sort of political figures. And, uh, and Marsha Wallace was, I think, his maid, like the White House maid, like with the sassy comebacks. <laughs> and it's one of those things, like, it's like, oh, I'm pretty sure that's, uh, that's Mrs. Cravaffle. Mm-hmm. What I hope is that. Because I did read that Al Jean, I think, or someone had mentioned that this doesn't mean that Mrs. Crabapple is the character we're going to kill off. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I think she, I think she's just getting written out of the show. But what's, what's yours? What's your episode? Again, I don't know why, but it's the one where he meets his mother, who rather deftly, the show had made a point of just never really referencing. And you only sort of realize that in hindsight, and that he always thought that she was dead. And... Um, hmm. The episode itself is actually, I think, one of the funnier episodes. It has some of the best lines. But there's just a little moment at the end where, like, there's no real connection that the two of them have. It's sort of a very good Lisa episode because it completely explains where Lisa came from. Mm-hmm. It was taking something and explaining something else, but at the same time providing an emotional payoff in all these other areas while still being funny. It, it's stuff like that. It's that kind of firing on all cylinders. That is what I, I miss. Mm-hmm. So anyway, they've sort of made it through this whole sort of episode with no sort of connection. And then right at the end, as she's sort of leaving, because she's on the lamb, she hits her head as she's getting into the escape van, and she goes, <laughs> Doh! <laughs> and then, then it cuts to Homer, and it's like this tiny little subtle animation of him realizing that there there is something. And it's I probably like half a second long, you know? Yeah. Is that when he sits staring at the stars right at the end as well? Yeah. Now that, going back to what I was saying before, that doesn't do anything for me. Wow, okay. Because that's trying too hard to me to like be, okay, now be sad. 
because he's looking up at the stars. And for me, for whatever reason, it's that little bit before that is sort of under the radar that was a lot more effective. Mm. I remember being quite impressed with it as a kid. I would have been very young when it was on TV for the first time um, and being very impressed with that being the ending. But if I were to sort of assess it impartially now, I would probably say that and they make a point of like doing a sort of sad version of the th- the Simpsons theme. And it's not too like cheesy and maudlin. I do like it. I just, I, that isn't touching to me in the same way, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas it's the little understated things that I think I kind of uh, react more to. That's why I love stuff like um, uh, Louis C.K.'s show, Louis. Yeah. There's stuff in that that is so tragic, and yet someone else can be watching the same scene and find it hilarious. Yeah. (laughs) That's the new kind of state of comedy now, is there's a lot more ambiguity. It's a similar thing. This, by the way, if people haven't seen Louis, it's an amazing show. It's not animated at all. But... um, just quickly go on a sort of storytelling tangent within a tangent. Yeah. <laughs> Try and keep track of the fucking Russian doll of this segment. I believe a trail of breadcrumbs so we can find our way back <laughs> for the next episode. Louis C.K., he's an American comedian. He's done two shows. One is a really amazing conceptual dramedy show, I guess. That's a cringy word, but that's like the best word I can think of in the moment. So tying that in a very, very roundabout way <laughs> to Adam Elliott. I suppose what what like Adam Elliott, The Simpsons, Louie, all these kind of, you know, what comedy does and what, what it does is it, it deconstructs life for you. And it, and, mm. and that's that's part of the appeal, I suppose, well, especially for me uh, personally with, with Adam Elliott's films and with the work of, you know, earlier Simpsons and, and especially Louis C.K. and things like that. So, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm with you there. I should probably mention he directed Mary and Max. I sort of did, but not explicitly. Yeah, he directed Mary and Max and Harvey Crumpet, which won an Oscar. And like I said, also uh, the the trilogy of three films before. They're called Brother and Cousin and Uncle, respectively. What ties these films together, A, they're all stop motion, and B, they all deal in some way or other with quite important social issues and personality disorders or uh, mental illnesses that kind of thing in a way you know like you say it, it's it's derived from real life and it feels authentic and it feels right and i think that um i think in australia this was definitely the case a couple of years ago i think they're used as educational tools in a way that uh, makes perfect sense to me i could see a few like conservative british parents getting a little uh, uptight about it because again of some of the language use maybe or because of like you know uh, things being referred to in a way that treats younger audiences like adults um, yeah well there was a school that- <laughs> the one in Aberdeen probably this was a couple the Halloween incident yeah, yeah, the, <laughs> the, the the school that showed um, the Sandman. Is that what you're talking about? I think that's great. <laughs> but parents are like so upset about. I I read like again. I think it was probably the Daily Mail. So you know, it was. It was uh, the, the the worst thing about that article. Basically, the the whole story was that a school in in Aberdeenshire. I don't know if it was in Aberdeen or Aberdeenshire. Showed uh, the Sandman, Paul Berry's masterpiece. Um, you've seen the Sandman, right? Yeah, everyone's yep. seen the Sandman. Brilliant. Um, Beautiful film. It's the film that basically set Tim Burton off as well. It's it created such a splash that the ripples are still felt today. But it was shown um, uh, to a class, 
uh, as part of a storytelling, a story writing workshop, and they showed the first part of the the film. They didn't show the bit where the Sandman comes in and rips the eyeballs out and things like that. But the children were asked. The children were asked, "Would you like to see the rest of this film?" They showed the rest of the film, and then crying, kids not wanting to go to sleep, all this kind of stuff happened. Wasn't it um, that but, one of the kids asked to see the rest of it? Yeah, they saw the beginning. It's like, oh, please, sir, can we see the re-? like that? They probably didn't call them sir kids today, little bastards. But anyway. The- <laughs> <laughs> they probably said, show the rest of the film or I'll shank you. <laughs> yeah. But basically, the Daily Mail went to YouTube. They went to YouTube as like a source of, of reaction. You don't go to YouTube as a source of reaction and put it in on a, as a newspaper article. That's like, you may as well shout out the window and ask the closest person. Yeah. So, so, such an overreaction for a film which has got more merits than it has got things working against it, I would say. Well, uh, the only thing I can think of that would work against it is the thing that people complain about. The kids got scared and some of them had nightmares. Yes, that's part of being a f***ing kid. You're a p***. You, you need to <laughs> thicken your skin up a bit. Yeah. You know, we did a whole thing last year. We did the Halloween podcast, and we did a whole segment talking about animation that scared the piss out of us. But that was great. They were scary at the time, but they become sort of beloved memories of like, oh my God, that was so freaky when such and such as I slow out of his head and, you know, the the crazy kid in Toy Story and Christopher Lloyd and Roger Abbott and it stays with you your, your whole life. And then it doesn't stay scary. You don't get PTSD. <laughs> you maybe have a... I used to have nightmares about gremlins and that was a f-ing Muppet movie for Christ's sake. <laughs> We watch it now, it may as well have been, but you know, it's like, it's great, but when you're a kid and you're, you're finding your way around the world, it's important to see things that freak you out a bit. Oh yeah, yeah, it's part of understanding everything. Why shelter children from this? And why, you know, trump it up in a national newspaper as if it's an actual news story? What happened is some kids saw a film, they learned something that they didn't know before, there you go. And what's what's wrong with covering your eyes during the scary bit? That was that was always my move when I thought something was going to scare me. I'd look away. Yeah, it's self-preservation. Yeah. Do you want to know something really embarrassing? There was a bit in Bill and Ted that scared me when I was a kid. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> what a little douche I was! I cry at The Simpsons and I get scared at Bill and Ted. <laughs> <laughs> they get sent to hell, and. Um, the devil, which is this really shitty devil costume, that scared me when I was a kid. Ah, oh, right. I don't want to diss the prosthetic guy. I'm sure he did a very fine job, but it's not a scary devil costume. But I, but I wasn't. I was a bit too old for that. I was like seven when that film came out. I should have been a little <laughs> bit more. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that like maybe you could get a similar situation where a teacher showed a clip from an Adam Elliott film to like young kids, and probably some parents would complain. Because it's it's not saying that, you know, oh, everyone is, is you know, if someone's has a, a disability or, or something that inhibits their, their, you know, mental well-being, it's okay because everyone's special and we're all... But no, treating people as though they're special and walking on, on eggshells more often than not is actually quite, again, quite counterproductive. So I think he's a very important filmmaker. I think that uh, Mary and Max in particular... Because it's a more long form, I think probably Harvey Crumpet is more in, effective in terms of it's more dense. It's a shorter film. 
because there's so much sort of to it in a, in a sense whereas mary and max it's a simpler story it's not yeah it, it, you follow these people through their lives but it's not telling their life stories you're kind of looking in at them and uh for people who haven't seen it first of all shame on you um and second of all it's about a very fond uh epistolary relationship between a young girl mm -hmm. and a middle-aged man with asperger's and the young girl lives in australia and he lives in new york and it's them coming to some kind of uh, understanding of one another in very shaky territory because with very little provocation he's prone to panic attacks and uh you know the, the sort of fluidity of their correspondence is stymied quite frequently but they persevere and they be, they get to know one another you root for both of them respectively but the woman uh she grows up and and you know becomes a young woman and leads a quite not very rosy life and things get progressively worse and worse for her and i think the um the way that they sort of grow apart and then come together and grow apart is just very well observed and i i like the way that um well I should also probably mention that the reason we're banging on about this is I, I've interviewed him about it, <laughs> and uh, he discusses uh, a bunch of this stuff. And I've had this interview banked for a while now. This is this goes back to before we even did the podcast, uh, but I recorded it to write up the article. So the article's been up for a while uh, that this interview is from. But really, since we started the podcast, I was sort of waiting for an excuse to put it in because I think he's he's tremendous. And um, the fact of the matter is there just hasn't been a, a new Adam Elliott project that's kind of become visible. I know there's been stuff going on, but, you know, this industry, it takes so long for things to even get greenlit, let alone get off the ground and get sort of firmly into production. So the interview itself kind of covers what I would say would be considered, you know, the bulk of his work to date. Given that he will be in Bradford this week, if you're going to be there and we're maybe on the fence about uh, going to see his uh, his talk or going to see the film, it would be an absolutely perfect opportunity. I don't think he's been in England for a while. So yeah, I don't. maybe this will, will, will uh, pique certain people's interest. I know there are plenty of people who love Mary and Max, so hopefully uh, they'll dig this too. So if you haven't seen this, go and see Uncle. If you haven't seen Cousin, go and see Cousin. If you haven't seen Brother, go and see Brother. I'm sure they're all available online. Go see Harvey Crumpet as well. Um, and even if you're just a fan of Mary and Max, or if you haven't seen Mary and Max, he's really a guy worth worth investigating, shall we say. And I think where my admiration for it comes from is the, the knowledge that it's not the kind of thing I, as a filmmaker, could really pull off. And I think that when you sort of acknowledge your sort of limitations within whatever your creative outlets are and you let go of wanting to to try and achieve what other people have achieved in other areas you can appreciate it a lot more and i think that and then you can be, appreciate also what it is that you can do a lot more you know i think it's acknowledging that certain people have certain strengths and certain people mm -hmm. have a gift for writing that makes you think and certain people have a gift for writing that makes you laugh and uh, certain people have a gift for writing that makes you get the blues. <laughs> and then, you know, this guy can can do all of it and interweave it really well. Not everyone's cup of tea in terms of its presentation, and I would I would understand that completely, but you, you owe it to yourself to give it a look if you haven't already. Yeah. 
And if you haven't read the article, because it's it's it goes back a while, the article is a conversation with Adam Elliott, and uh, it's largely based on the interview we're about to hear. Excellent. I guess first of all, I'm very interested in what the uh, animation scene is like uh, in different territories than my own, and uh, being an Australian animator, yes. how do you feel about the industry over there? Is it strong at the moment? Well, I think. I mean, it is and it isn't. I suppose it, 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 you know, like most countries, we always complain. But when we compare ourselves to other countries, in in many ways, we're doing okay. In terms of festivals and prizes and awards and all that sort of area of the industry, we we tend to punch above our weight. And and here in Melbourne, we have a lot of independent animation, and Melbourne seems to generate so many. Um, Oscar winners, including myself, and <laughs> I think it's sort of the same for sport. Melbourne seems to be a very conducive place to be creative, especially compared to Sydney. Sydney, of course, gets all the attention, but Melbourne seems to really um, produce a lot of actors, painters, and maybe something to do with the weather here is so lousy <laughs> that we um, spend, spend a lot of time indoors, <laughs> myself to do. <laughs> But the industry, in terms of the industry, we're very lucky that we have government support, which, you know, we always have to fight continually for, but we seem to, um, you know, we we depend on our government investors. So if we didn't have government investment, you know, I would never have made my early films. I would never have then made Mary X. And I certainly wouldn't be talking to you. I'd probably be doing web design or some other sort of more... <laughs> Yeah, a much more commercial uh, sector of the industry. It's very nice to see claymation also still being used, and especially in, in your case to tell quite adult stories and as accepted as animation has become as a legitimate means of storytelling for pretty much all age groups at this point. There does seem to be kind of in a lingering uh, association with that like hand-sculpted, uh, hand-crafted look with um, where I live, you know, stuff like Ardman, obviously, and... Uh, how embraced yeah. do you feel that in Australia animation is for an adult audience? Well, I suppose, you know, in, in, well, to begin with, we always see ourselves somewhere between Europe and, and America. Um, you know, we have an English sensibility, but we tend to try and sell ourselves to the Americans. And uh, I can only talk personally, I suppose, that I, I, the reason I do stop motion animation is purely for selfish reasons, I, I get very frustrated sitting in front of a computer screen. I'd much rather be chopping the wood and painting and getting my hands dirty and making all these bits and pieces for the films. Ironically, I don't actually do that anymore. I have my crew doing that. I'm just sort of the conductor of the orchestra. But I still love the tactile nature of stop motion. I mean, we all know all animation is slow, you know, high-end animation, whether it's stop motion or CGI, is, is expensive. You know, I, I'm very thankful and grateful to companies like Artman who have brought Playmation to the, you know, to the mainstream and the masses. But I still think I'd still be a stop motion animator regardless of whether Wallace and Gromit were invented. Uh, you know, I'm friends with Nick Park and Peter Lord and and it's good to catch up with them, but really the only thing we have in common is plasticines. <laughs> you know, I've, I've always tried to make my films for 
Well, I haven't tried to make them for an adult audience. I've just tried to tell stories that I want to hear. And I just prefer, you know, stories that are a little bit more edgy, a little bit more sophisticated, stories that push boundaries. And you can do that with kids' animation, for sure. But, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't ever think about the audience too much. I just sit down and write stories that, I, I, that would appeal to me and then worry about who my demographic is. And it is, look, it is great that I'm not just the only person out there films uh, you know, the other uh, films that have come out recently, like Waltz with Bashir and um, Persepolis, uh, you know, that the animation is definitely evolving and shifting gear and, you know, there is more and more adult animation. Um, I mean, I didn't use the term adult animation until recently because if I said I did adult animation, most people would think I was doing films like Fritz the Cat or yeah. some sort of <laughs> clay pornography or something. <laughs> Whereas now, you know, people are understanding that animation is can be and, and you know, it's just a preference. It's like a pencil or a paintbrush. It's just a, it's just a vehicle for telling a story. So why has it traditionally been geared towards children? Um, and you know, I, have, I blame Disney and uh, <laughs> Disney for that. But um, but yeah, look, I'm just very lucky that I'm allowed to keep making my films. I I, I just uh, make one film at a time. I don't do commercial work. I don't. I've never done an ad or anything like that. Not that you know. I, I, poo-poo ads at all. I mean, I'm just one of those lucky filmmakers who's been allowed to just keep making his films, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I think what struck me most about your work when I first encountered it, and in particular, like, Cousin and the original uh, trilogy of, of those short films, mm-hmm. that way you're able to take subject matter that, not necessarily adult, but a lot of the time it's handled with uh, kids' gloves, like things like cerebral palsy and yeah. alcoholism and, like, limitations of, of social and cognitive development that can actually have quite a lot of mileage comedically, but it's sort of taboo to say yeah. that, to acknowledge that. And you do marry it with, you know, the tragedy and the hardship and, um, represent both sides yeah. quite well. It's great to see, you know, Mary and Max sort of similarly delves into that. Do you find the audience as a reaction, do they find it refreshing or have you ever had any like negative responses to that? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think firstly, I try, I mean, I've always tried to write very funny films. Um, unfortunately, I can't help myself. I end up being quite tragic. Um, <laughs> I, and I, I think now it's only after all these years I've realised what I, I'm doing and that that is I'm telling stories about my family and friends and people I've met and everybody's life is is full of dark and light you know no one has a perfectly happy life no one has a completely miserable life I think it's all shades of dark and one of my favorite quotes is um without the dark the light has no meaning and vice versa I mean comedy tragedies have been around for centuries and to tell stories which are authentic and empathetic and relatable to an audience you you can't just do gags you you have to you know dig deeper and and uh i try and create very authentic characters which is ironic because they're plasticine <laughs> not real but my aim is to you know of course my aim is to make the audience laugh but i really feel like I've achieved something if I if I cause them to, to cry. I know that's a strange ambition is to upset an audience, but <laughs> I don't want my... I don't like audiences leaving the cinema 
uh, indifferent or apathetic. I really want them to have experienced something, even if they have just laughed, at least I've, I've pushed some buttons. I mean, of course, you can't please everybody, and I have my critics, of course, like most filmmakers. Um, but I'm very lucky that they do often see me as a refreshing filmmaker, especially with my earlier shorts. I really was a point of difference. Um, I mean, I never felt that, and you know, when I went to places like Annecy and, and uh, Stuttgart and those festivals, I really just felt amongst kindred spirits, but mm. it's usually in the mainstream where they, they just look at you strangely. I think Harvey Crumpled, of course, opened the doors and, and really enlightened a lot of people here, especially in my own country, as to what animation can be. Um, but, but yeah, look, I, I just I keep telling my own stories. I, I I I'm not very good at collaborating with other writers. I never have, and I don't think I ever will. And I just am fascinated by the human psyche, and 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 I love just telling stories and biographies about my my family and friends, which is why I came up with the word playography. I never felt comfortable calling myself an animator or a claymate or any of those terms. I thought, oh, what, what am I? I'm, I make clay biographies. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I want to keep doing. I don't really want to move into any other sort of area. So it's just one form at a time, one feature at a time. I'm, you know, developing another feature at the moment. And mm-hmm. Of course, if no one goes to see them, well, then that's it all over. <laughs> the narration has a sort of or a very anecdotal quality to it that sort of suggests there's elements of autobiography or inspired at least by first-hand experience. Is that usually the case? Oh, yes. I mean, I I always um, say to people I'm not really obsessed by plots. In a way, my films, especially my earlier films, were like, you know, flicking through a photo album and you, you just see little vignettes and little photographs that just happen to move and blink at you um, and I've never really been obsessed by plot. Of course with the feature you know you have to be you know, you have to have some sort of storyline there and the narrator for me is a device. I love I love films uh, by other filmmakers that are narrated. I just find there's something really intimate and authentic and personal and real about uh, um, yeah, I mean there's bad narration of course but I really um, love that sensation that somebody is guiding you through the film. Um, having said that, my, my new film that I'm writing, I've decided to leave narration for the moment. I've, um, I feel like I might be getting a bit sort of formulaic by using narration, so mm-hmm. this, this time around I'm leaving it out and seeing how I go. It could be the worst mistake I've ever made, um, <laughs> the worst decision I've ever made. I've, I've got to keep pushing myself too. I mean, I do like you know, like to do things my way in a very certain way, but at the same time, I don't want to become stale and stagnant. I want to push myself and, and push my own sort of storytelling as much as I can uh, without compromise and without alienating my audience, you know, um, which is a tough thing, you know. It, it, I think a lot of filmmakers run out of steam, and I'm always worried that each film I make could possibly be my last. <laughs> being put on the map, especially with something like Harvey Crumpet that does incredibly well, and then was it that sort of success that, that led to the notion of, of putting together a feature, or was that always something that you'd had on the cards? Well, you know, I 
um, there's a couple of answers to the question. I suppose I, I, you know, I've never obsessed by length. You know, it's to, to, my mum always said it's quality, not quantity. Mm. And uh, I, you know, I always let my characters tell me how long their stories are going to be. And, and Harvey Crumpet, well, I started off thinking Harvey Crumpet was going to be a five to ten minute film. And by the time I finished writing it, it was more like a half hour. So... That's why we made it that way. Um, we didn't worry that it was a long short and would be very difficult to get into film festivals. We just really focused on telling the best story we could. Um, and then with Mary and Max, of course, the Oscar opened a lot of doors and, and made it more viable for me to a, a, a attempt the feature. And I had a desire to tell a story about my pen friend for a long time. And I had a, I've got a big box of all his letters from the last 22 years and I just started to reread them and realised what a fascinating person he was and still is. And uh, I thought, well, there's so much here. This is easily a feature. Um, mm. But then I also wanted to combine it with myself because we are pen friends, but I want to put myself in the film. So I, I turned myself into an eight-year-old girl <laughs> just to make it <laughs> a bit more extreme and, again, push the boundaries and make it a little bit more interesting. I mean, I don't, my films are not documentaries and, and, you know, they are they are works of fiction and they're based on my family and friends, but, you know, there's plenty of embellishments and uh, exaggerations and, and scenes that are completely fictitious. So I, I never let the truth get in the way of a good story. I, yeah. you know, I, I, I never kid or try and persuade anyone that my films are 100% factual you know their their stories at the end of the day um so yes yeah, so I, I became after well after mary max I, be, I call myself a feature creature now i'm really i never thought i could write a feature and or, or make a feature film but now that i've done one i think i'll actually stop that hard i mean it is of course <laughs> incredibly hard and slow and hideously expensive but now i sort of am getting familiar with the um structure of a feature film I'm more sort of feeling that's the sort of length I want to keep pursuing but then again you know the next character I start writing about I might find out that well really his or her story is only an hour long so I might end up having to make a one hour film which is com completely uh, commercially <laughs> <laughs> impossible to sell um, so you know you've got to balance up the commercial realities with with your, uh, without, you know, um, as I said earlier, I, I try not to compromise, but I have to be aware that, that the art form I've chosen is slow, expensive, complex, and I need uh, investors to, to help me make them. So these days I wish I was a cake decorator or something a lot yeah. more simple and <laughs> quicker. So when you're producing uh, these features, so comparatively speaking, as an independent company, is it hard to mm. gather funds and put together a crew, or at this point do you have like a good foundation of people to work with? I never have trouble finding the right people to yeah. help me make the films. And a Mary and X, I think we had almost 200 by the end of it all. We, we, and most of them were locals. Um, we didn't have to import anyone to Australia. Um, so no, I, I never have any trouble finding people who want to help me make the films. Um, but of course, it is incredibly difficult to raise the millions of dollars we need despite the Oscars, despite the critical success. Um, it's still hard to get an independent 
quote uh, film up. Yeah. <laughs> well, most of them are very hard to pitch. I mean, we tried to pitch Mary Max to Disney, and that it's like we were pitching a snuff film or something. <laughs> you know, they just they just looked at it. You what? You want to make a film about a pen friendship between a forty-year-old man and an eight-year-old girl? I mean, yeah, it was a hard film. So again, we're very lucky that we have government investment here. We have fantastic tax rebates for filmmakers, um, but nevertheless, it's it's very very slow and complex to raise the money. Uh, the new film we're about to start trying to finance. We're thinking of doing as a co-production with another country just to share the share the cost. Um, I mean, Australia is a small country. We only have 20 million people, and philanthropy is not one of our strong points. Um, we all tend to go to the government for handouts, and and they only have a certain amount of money themselves. So my budgets are getting uh, higher and higher, and. Uh, the sad reality is I, I do have to leave our shores to seek other investment. So I think this project's going to take us at least another six to 12 months to finance and then, of course, another two years to make. So yeah, I'm sort of averaging about two films a decade at the moment. So <laughs> I've probably only got four left and I'll be dead. <laughs> it's so amazing that to, to be able to essentially create a film on your own even with you know a crew it's when you think of how much labor goes into you know a standard pixar film or um mm. really even like a european film it'll be the bigger studios yeah. of that region that will be responsible for it to like you say be an auteur filmmaker and produce something that is a long-form story and, and has that um that type of storytelling and do it effectively to a decade is that is is pretty incredible the downfall of a lot of potentially very good independent feature films that will be visually very yeah. interesting and then the voice acting will be dreadful. Mm. Um, but like with Mary and Max, you have this amazing cast that um, mm. really, really sort of cements and, and tells the story you know, very, very well. How did you find uh, the casting process? Was that, um, was that in your hands? or? Well, I've been very lucky. Again, every, every, with each film I... You know, I have an actor in mind even as I'm writing the, the film and I don't necessarily want them to be a big name. Um, it's more just a voice that I think would suit. Um, and, I've, you know, with each film I've had a sort of a, a, a dream cast that I've wanted to get, thinking that there's no way I'd get them. But, <laughs> you know, we never thought we'd get them or Seymour Hoffman. That was just sort of a, mm. almost a joke. We said, oh, maybe, you know. But because of the strength of the script and the strength of uh, and, and the leverage of Harvey Crump and Neoska, you know, we we kept forgetting that we did have access to these people and that they would at least uh, contemplate reading the script. Um, so, yeah, he was always the first person in, in my mind. He just, just that sort of, he's a chameleon. I don't like, uh, you know, I don't like actors whose voices are immediately recognisable. I really mm -hmm. want to Philip Seymour Hoffman to sort of disguise his voice and, and I really don't like putting the actors' names at the beginning of the film. I don't like people knowing who, who the voices are until the end. Uh, so he, he just seemed a perfect match and uh, and Tony Collette, well, she, you know, she's got a, a certain melancholy and vulnerability to her voice and she seemed a right match there and... Um, 
and uh, who else? Oh, Barry. I mean, Barry Humphreys too. He's just a local here in, in Melbourne as well. You know, he lives in London as well. But uh, he had a certain warmth to his voice as a narrator, which I felt felt was appropriate. And so we, yeah, we all the actors we wanted, we ended up getting and um, and then Jeffrey Rush for Harvey Crumpet. Well, he he's got a beautiful sounding voice. I mean, I'd love to get, you know, Morgan Freeman. I think he, I mean, no, he's mm. probably been overused now as a, as, a, as a voiceover actor, but, um, you know, certain actors have just got this, this authenticity and you could listen to them read the phone book, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so casting is important, but it's not, it's not um, for me, how do I say this? I mean, I don't, think of actors just so we can help sell the film. Of course, a name like Philip Seymour Hoffman does help sell the film, but it's not the reason I wanted him for the for the voice. I just, I, I like actors who are sort of more stage actors too, sort of more, their star is not brighter than them, you know, that they have a sort of credibility um, or, or an actor's actor. Um, but then again, you know, there's certain characters in my films it's more sort of supporting cast who you can have fun with and get some really wacky sort of actors to do the voices for so uh, again it's always a balance between getting some serious uh, elements and some, some comedic sort of stuff did you uh, direct them in person uh, when they were recording or was it all like like say when it's someone like Philip Seymour Hoffman who's based in the States do they come to Australia or do you go over there or is it done like by the internet most of the Australian cast we, we just did here because it was just you know, easy and, and cheap, but to, no, Philip Seymour Hoffman, we, he, we recorded him in, uh, he was in London and we were in a studio in Melbourne. Just because the cost of flying him here first class and putting him up in hotels and limousines and all those things that agents demand, not so much the actor, but the agents demand, just made, just would have blown our budget completely. So uh, we set up a very sort of uh, secure, high-end live cable internet I don't know what you call it and um, yeah we recorded him remotely and the way I saw him was via Skype so I mean it was a very expensive hookup that we had between the two studios and the studios were proper sound recording studios I, I was very sceptical at first I said oh no look as a director I really need to be there with him but after recording it he enjoyed the process I enjoyed the process um you know, I could focus more on 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 his voice and not have to worry about was he being fed or you know was he getting cups of tea and you know, yeah. all that sort of stuff. <laughs> so I highly recommend all directors direct their actors from the other side of the planet. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, the little girl, the the young Mary, was that trickier with like a child actor getting the right voice for that? Yeah. Oh, look, she was a nightmare. Um, okay. <laughs> she was far, Far more stressful and, than directing Philip Seymour Hoffman. No, I mean, she made... I mean, she was so young. She was eight, and she had never really done anything like this. She, you know, she'd done a few ads and a few theatre productions and things, but she'd never had to do a voice for an animated character. And so she found it very difficult and frustrating, and she would have tantrums and, and you know, all the rules and regulations about... Uh, working with kids who were only allowed to work for an hour and a half at a time or you know there was all these restrictions and I think we ended up having at least six or so uh, recording sessions with her <laughs> and uh, 
But we auditioned, I think, over 40 or so little girls for the part, and they were all dreadful. And then she came along and just she just had this melancholy to her voice and honesty, and it was a very authentic sound. And, you know, she was the most difficult, but I think the end result was worth it. Um, you know, it's a few, I won't mention a few actors in the film that I'm not entirely happy with, and it, it's impossible to get it, the, the performance you always dream of, but most of the actors in Mary Max, I think we got pretty close to what we wanted there. Yeah, it mentions on your uh, EPK you're a, you get a lot of Hollywood offers and that you're not that receptive yeah. to it. Is that out of a, a sort of fondness for Australia or is it more like it's just not your thing in general? Well, it's for a couple of reasons. Because of the Oscar, but a lot of the you know, the, the Oscar has a currency and, and people want to use your name to and attach your name to their project. So I do, you know, a lot of things get... I get a lot of unsolicited emails with scripts attached and a lot of, you know, writers who want to clap. And, and, you know, it's really hard to say no and a lot of them get upset when you say no. But I just... I'm just too selfish. I'm really just... I'm, I just want to do my films and... and um, I, I know I'd lose interest if I ever collaborated with someone else or directed somebody else's script or someone else's or, or wrote somebody else's idea. Um, you know, I'm like a painter more than a, than a filmmaker. I have to do it all my way, and you know, I think I'm a control freak at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is very hard to turn down some of the some of the big offers. Well, you know, a lot of them are just they're not offers. They're people approaching, you know, studios approaching you saying, "Will you read?" The Smurfs, you know, the <laughs> and you know, I have read some scripts, some big scripts, and and uh, but usually, you get to the end of the script and think, oh no, this is just not, it's just not my thing. I'm sure it'll make half a billion dollars, and I'm sure it'll guarantee me for the big budget films down the track. But yeah, I think I would upset a lot of, especially people who look like my films. If I suddenly jump ship and went and worked for a big studio and I, I'm pretty sure I'd never come back. I'd get a taste for the money and, you know, I mean, having said that, I do go to Hollywood, of course, every now and then to meet with potential investors and studios, but they all say the same thing to me, you know, that they, they say, oh, we really love Harvey Crump and we really like Mary Max, but, you know, do you want to do a film about flying dragons or flying, you know? <laughs> I mean, my aim in life is to never make any of my animals talk. I've just refused no. <laughs> to, to um, you know, um, and unfortunately most high-end animation that does have talking animals, so I'll probably get to the age of 60 and look back and think, you idiot, you should have done at least one of those you know, big CGI films and got uh, yourself as some superannuation and something to retire with, but I'm, you know, I'm almost 40 this year and I think I'm becoming more of a stick in the mud and more of a purist. Given that it's been a, uh, uh, I guess, a couple of years since the initial release of the film, uh, and now it's out on DVD. Overall, how do you feel about the way it uh, it did? How it was received? Did it live up to any like personal expectations you had for it? Well, you know, we we all uh, wished we'd had a, a big theatrical release in in America, but you know, we 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 underestimated how unprepared they were for Mary and Max. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I see it as a very uplifting film. Um, the French see, see it similarly and, and so does Europe, but 
But in America, they see the film as very dark and not for children, not for children. They're obsessed yeah. by saying, not for children. Um, so, yeah, I, look, I learned a lesson, and that was America is still, you know, quite conservative in many ways, whereas with countries like France and uh, far more, um, I don't know what the word is, enlightened or sophisticated or prepared for sort of darker sort of animation. Um, so, yeah, look, I'm not surprised we didn't end up getting a big theatrical run in uh, America, but now that I've had some hindsight and I can be objective, I, I know why. I don't blame America at all for not <laughs> putting us out on, at all the multiplexes. I didn't think I was creating another art house film, but, you know, we sure did. And, uh, but, you know, it's it's doing well on DVD. It's, you know, we've released in Japan and... Um, I, we get emails and Facebook emails every day from places as far as Argentina and Iran and mm. um, we've sold I think to over 20, 20 countries so for a film that's really about 10 friends in plasticity with a mm. tragic sort of ending uh, I think we've done okay had Mary Max bombed critically then I wouldn't be talking to you I'd probably be working in a supermarket stacking shelves <laughs> so and the exposure of the films on this international level, the huge, huge, huge list of, of festivals and accolades and um, this life that they have, you know, once you put them out into the world. And Are you active in, in going to festivals? And, and I used to be. I, you know, when I was younger, I, I did like going to Annecy as much as possible. You know, and I would say yes to any festival that invited me. Mm -hmm. But I think now that I'm getting older, I'm sort of, I find a lot of festivals, and I turn down some, some wonderful invitations. You know, they are hedonistic, wonderful ways to, to meet with other like-minded people, and uh, it's you always get a buzz out of seeing different audiences, how they react in different countries to your films. You do learn, you do learn a lot about, you know, what is universal and what is idiosyncratic to each country. But I do find they slow me down, and... and Someone who depressed me too. I come away feeling, oh God, they're all, what a bunch of dreadful films. Why aren't you know what's going wrong? You know, mm. so I I might go to one or two a year and and sort of just keep it at that. I mean, I'm too busy to be honest to be to, to be jet setting around the world and because Australia, particularly Melbourne where I live, is so far away from anywhere. And, but it is important once the films are released that I do try and you know I have to go out there and promote the films and. Mary Max opened Sundance, which was a huge shock to our system. We never expected that to happen. So, but but then you know it can be a poison chalice. Those sorts of festivals they can be it can go either way really. And, and Sundance was a great way of exposing our film to all the heavyweights in Hollywood. But you know it still didn't lead to a theatrical sales. It is a pity that the resistant or the hesitant attitude toward you know bringing that kind of film, but if they would specifically not market it to a general audience or keep it away from kids and when you see it respected enough to you know by by sundance to open the festival i know it seems like the the attitude is becoming quite antiquated that that you know younger people or a general audience can't handle uh, a film that goes into that sort of territory it does seem yeah. like a lot of these people don't really give audiences credit to think for themselves or this is the irony is that we know Mary Max is thriving out there 
you know, as a pirated film and as a downloadable film and as a DVD and as and on airlines and it's alive and kicking and seems to be growing more and more because I know by the amount of emails we get every day that I'm getting more now than when the film was released two years ago. So it's definitely a slow burner. Um, it's a shame, you know, it's going to take a while for it to make all its money back and, and people, especially on Facebook, they leave all these comments where this, they, they are very obviously moved by the film but also they often say, oh, this, this film has left a real deep impression upon me and I don't know why. I mean, that's the comment we get the most is, this is not what I expected. And you think, well, what, what were you expecting? <laughs> were you expecting uh, Finding Nemo? Or what were, you, what were you expecting? And a lot of people, especially, I mean, parents with kids with Asperger's syndrome and, and, and especially people who are very alone, I mean, we get some of the most sad, some very sad emails from people who are terribly alone who relate to Max and to Mary and some of them are very hard to read and, and so we know that we've made a film that really moves people and affects them quite deeply. Was the inspiration for Max, has he seen the film? Does he have a opinion on it one way or the other? Yeah, well look, I've, I've never met him um, and I'm, I'm going out to New York at Christmas to finally do so. We were very transparent with the script and the film when we were making it so he knew all about it. He couldn't see what the fuss was about. And, and when he finally did see the film, he sent me a list of things he thought could be better in <laughs> true Asperger's fashion. Uh, but, you know, he and his, um, his brother and his mother are very proud of the film, but also, you know, still sort of confounded as to why anyone would want to make a film about him. You know, he's much more into Spider-Man 3 and those sorts of films. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, yeah, no, looking forward to meeting him, and who uh, would have thought when we first started writing letters to each other that uh, I'd end up making an $8 million film about, about our letters. So mm. <laughs> it's, it's amazing how well art can imitate life and, and reverse. Yeah, it's, it's nice, to, and also the, the sequence in the film where Mary produces the book about you know her experience and the reaction is quite hostile. Was there ever a concern mm. that he'd react to the film negatively? Yes, I was. You know, I deliberately wrote that scene because I thought, well, wouldn't this be well, not funny? Wouldn't this be <laughs> devastating if I make this film that that I then get him to see and he disapproves of? So you know, it was quite a bit of a mind be honest, to try and sort of write something in that way and quite risky and quite dangerous. But again, I like pushing the boundaries. I like to sort of play around with concepts and ideas and sort of, you know, I try and do things that Disney and Pixar would never be allowed to do and would never sort of contemplate. I mean, that their films are for families and um, have to be very merchandisable and family-friendly. Um, you know, they can't have characters taking Valium and <laughs> assisted suicide. You know? yeah. I mean, having said that, I, I thought Toy Story 3 was, you know, it, it definitely was dark and um, up, you know, it was good the film up had um, a bit of death in the first 10 minutes. And, uh, yeah. you know, I think, anima I think animation is evolving and it's not, definitely not the days of Lion King and um, Aladdin. I think we've definitely progressed since then. But, 
when your budget is $170 million, I think, which is what Toy Story 3 was, or somewhere around there, you have to be pretty safe, you know, that's a lot of money. Mm. So the film you're uh, uh, working on at the moment, is there anything you can talk about in terms of the story or what it's about, or is it being kept under wraps at the moment? Well, I can tell you a little bit. I mean, I think I said earlier, it's, it's, it doesn't have narration, so it's mm -hmm. a bit of a, a deviation, but it's definitely in my style and, and my aesthetic and subject matter, which other studios just couldn't contemplate. But it is a bit lighter than Mary Max. It, it's my version of a romantic comedy. I don't think it would be seen that way by many others, but it's just probably as close as I'm ever going to get. But there's dark moments in there. There's plenty of dark stuff, but it's a lot lighter. I think there's more light than dark than compared to Mary Max. Mm -hmm. And the budget, we're sort of probably anywhere from in Australian dollars, we're sort of aiming for somewhere between 15 and 20 million, which is still pretty cheap compared to Ardman and Pixar. You know, I'm not heading that way, but it is definitely in advance for Marion X. It's more time to think. Right. So that was Ben talking to Adam Elliott. Uh, well, if you enjoyed that, you can see uh, Adam Elliott talking to another esteemed stop-motion animator, Mr. Barry Purvis, and that's at the Bradford Animation Festival this year on the Saturday at, uh, at 1.30. Also, that evening, straight afterwards, at 4.30, you can see Mary and Max on the big screen, which is uh, an opportunity, I would say. I'm sure you'd say as well, Ben, not to be missed. Ah, uh, definitely. Well, I, I think I saw it twice in the cinema, and I rather relished the idea of seeing it a third time, which is not something I say about many movies, believe me. Yeah. It's wonderfully done. If you like stop motion, there's so much to enjoy and to look at. Um, and I have it on DVD as well, you know, and I've seen, you know, I've seen it with like the commentary and like them sort of talking about how everything was made and that kind of thing. And again, it's not really my sort of area of animation. It's more um, with stop motion. I just kind of like take a step back and sort of nod in awe for the most part. <laughs> yeah. Looking forward to the Barry Purvis uh, discussion as well with him. Be interested to see what the uh, costume choice will be for that evening, because I know that Barry Purvis has taken to doing presentations Wearing nothing but a robe? Uh, Bradford, he usually keeps his clothes on. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's disappointing. <laughs> you can tell him yourself at Bath this year. <laughs> but maybe we can petition them. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> usually when we run out of things to say, I usually go with the old... Ba -da 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 -da. <laughs> well, let's get out of here. <laughs> Gosh, Steve, I sure am bored. What's new in the cinema nowadays, Steve? What's new in the cinemas nowadays? Uh, it's another one of those authentic, non-contrived lead-ins to a segment. Yeah. I think I'm getting pretty good at it. Basically, we're leading up to talking about a film which is currently at the cinemas, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2. Mm -hmm. Ben, have you seen Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, the first one, the original? I certainly haven't. Oh, what? I'll tell you this much. It's on the go. I'm about 13 minutes into it uh, on the old Netflix. I think I'll, I'll wait for when I have a, a, a spare hour or so to properly give it the attention it deserves, let's say that. But um, it didn't prove to be a film you can just bang on in the background. I think it, it sort of warranted a bit more respect, shall we say. Yeah, it's a pretty hyperactive film. You, it needs your full attention. It came out in 2009, and it came out at a time where... 
there was quite a lot of animated CG feature films and people were just starting to notice. It was all samey. There were some things that, which were great. There were some things that weren't so great. Generally, it seemed like CG animation was just kind of ticking over. But for me, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, the original kind of, it was such a surprise. Uh, and it's a film that I still recommend people watch now. It's loud. It's hilarious. It's, you know, it's a feast for the eyes, if you'd excuse the pun. Well, what I liked is that they weren't afraid to do something stylistic. Exactly. And, and I think that's been the case with their other films. Except for, well, did they do the Smurfs, Sony? Uh, yes, yeah, we did do the Smurfs as well. Yeah. I mean, that just looks like the Smurfs, but, you know. Yeah. They did the films with Ardman recently, right? That's right, yeah, they're, they're Ardman's partners. Because it was post-DreamWorks and then Sony. And yeah. So, I mean, obviously they're, they're willing to take chances on things and they're willing to expand their sort of style range. So when you see stuff like, you know, Pirates and Arthur Christmas, which don't have a particularly Pixar-y look to them other than that they're cartoons in, in some form or other, or animation rather, in some form or other, mm -hmm. but they do sort of make their own kind of mark style-wise. Um, so I, I do like that sort of overall agenda because I, I do find, and we've talked about this before, the the needless hyper photorealism of you know what's the point in making a cartoon if it's set in an environment that may as well be a parking lot, yeah, or a, a, an actual forest. It's like that sort of co the concept of like photorealism and painting, like it is technically very impressive. And it's a it's a very odd labor intensive way of doing it, but what is really being artistically achieved? Mm -hmm. Now this may get a bit of flack, and I'm presenting this as as a personal taste thing. So so bear with me, folks. From a design perspective, a lot of the charm of animation is when people can do things with design that's really inventive and creative and interesting. And uh, I was talking with a girl the other day about life drawing. And uh, she showed me some of her life drawing, and she does really non-realistic life drawing, but it's very good because it's taking, you know, the actual image and, for lack of a better term, cartoonizing it, mm -hmm. playing with proportions, caricaturing and things like that. And it's something you see very rarely, probably not rarely in, say, a life drawing class within an animation studio, but the average, you know, one that you go into in your local community center or whatever everyone tends to take it very kind of literally and seriously and i certainly do for the most part what you can then apply it to is is you can have more fun with designs because you know what everything is fundamentally based on and i think that they've had a lot of fun just looking at the creativity of the creatures that go into the meatballs films and you know it is impressive and it was refreshing at the time mm -hmm. I, i'm trying to remember right it was an odd year when it came out i'll say that much yeah um, uh, oh Coraline, Monsters vs. Aliens, Ponyo, Fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, Secret of the Kells. So there was a lot of like different stuff going on, and it, was a, it seemed like there'd been a big surge in, in film and animation. I hadn't thought of this until you brought it up just now. I do remember that it seemed that animation was... There was more of it around. That year was the first year it seemed to kind of go nuts, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it was obviously, you know, 2009, the year that Disney decided to release another 2D feature, you know, but which didn't go down very well, actually, unfortunately, but it sort of landed amongst the rest, you know, it was the year that the, the up kind of took everything. But, but for me, that year was certainly, uh, in terms of CG animation, 
Claudio, the chance of meatballs, the first one, spectacular. Spectacular imagery, spectacular idea, executed in such a fantastic way. I mean, you look at the original source material, it's a, it's a children's book. It's a very straightforward story, but what they did is they deconstructed it and created this mad scientist character, and just, they did an amazing job. And the film, uh, obviously, about a character called Flint Lockwood, for those who don't know, he creates a machine that can turn water into food. And the machine gets rocketed up into the air uh, due to his own incompetence. And uh, all of a sudden, it's it's raining food. And he can communicate with the machine, and uh, it's raining food. And the machine gets a mind of its own, and he has to close it down. It's a great, you know, action movie. It's a great comedy movie. It's a great... As you can tell, I'm singing its praises. What I really do like about the, the idea, and I'm looking right now at some production art from it, of, like, these various animals, these sort of food-animal hybrids. For, for Meatballs 2. And what this does that is done surprisingly rarely in animated films, it does the thing that animation is sort of made for, which is to take fantastical concepts and make them real in, in some form or other. Even like a Shrek movie or like a Pixar film, like they tend to add a layer of, of sort of realness to a fairly basic concept so okay it's a bunch of cars that are all friends mm-hmm. which is i mean that's basically thomas the tank engine yeah i mean obviously it's a very different film and story but like when you think of what they've done um and then the toy story the toys well they're all toys and we all know what toys are but what if the toys came alive well that's something that all kids kind of i think fantasized about so that's why you know of course it did so well and it's a done very effectively as a story you know shrek is a bunch of fairy tale characters and a lot of it relies on stuff that's just kind of there now i'm not accusing pixar of being lazy storytellers for the most part um (laughs) i'm not the biggest cars fan in the world i'll I'll go on record as saying that but I, i i for the most part really admire their approach to storytelling but what I really do like about this, even if, again, I haven't seen the film, so I can't really impartially judge the story, but I just like and admire that they're just having fun doing some, like, nutty stuff. Sorry, that sounds very twee. They're being inventive. Yeah, yeah, they've, they've got a concept, they've created a concept, they've created a world. Everything that they, that comes from it, it comes from this world, this tapestry that they've woven themselves, if, you, if I can be so yeah. artsy-fartsy. Because it's all like animals combined with food, right? That's right. So the banana dolphin, it looks like. Uh, I, I've got a list here. Shall I read out some of the, the more hilarious puns in Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2, Ben? Shall I treat you to that? I'd be offended if you didn't. <laughs> right, are you ready? There's an apple python. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's a banana ostrich. There's a buffalo. There's a cheese spider. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> there's a, a, a cucumberdy, which is a, a flying cucumber. Eggplanty, a manatee, which is an eggplant. Flamangos, that's a little bit better. You've got to admit, flamangos, that's not bad. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> so, okay, so wait, they just started with puns and then worked from there. Uh, and mosquitoes. I like that one. That's quite nice. Uh <laughs> Wordplay humour. Meat Balrus. That was my favourite. Meat Meat Balrus was my favourite. Okay, I have a question. Shrimpanzee. Shrimp's an animal. It is. 
it's more animal than food, really. So when you combine shrimp with a chimpanzee, that's not technically a foodimal. That's an animalimal. I'm just saying. I mean, do they specify that it's synthetic shrimp? No, no, it's uh, it's shrimpanzee. And and this is one of the, the issues that one of the directors had as well. And he, he thought that he was the only person in the entire world to have this issue. So uh, you and him see eye to eye on this, Ben. Oh, did I foreshadow this? Yeah, you and, you and the director having, uh, have having similar problems there with, with that character. But uh, yeah, for the, for the, you know, the, the film itself uh, and the, the sort of wacky puns and the, you know, know the, the characters that return and stuff the one thing that i would praise this film for is that although it is a sequel it's not afraid of doing new things the first film was a disaster movie about it raining food mm-hmm. and about that getting out of hand and this is a completely different movie it's a, a movie about greed and jealousy and it's a movie about from a sort of visual point of view it's more about the kind of it's more like an adventure film you know, mm-hmm. the first one was a disaster movie. This is more of an adventure film. There's a few shots in there that are shot for shot like Jurassic Park. Oh, cool. Yeah, and other films. And the directors there are not afraid of uh, talking through their influences as well. I mean, it's well worth seeing. Yeah, I like a sequel that will be its own film rather than redo the same film. Or even worse, take something from the first film that went down quite well let's say a sidekick or a, a, a good simple joke and then doing that to death. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something that I really can't abide in, in any film is when they rely on that, that crutch to just keep yeah. selling it. I remember, I remember that it was, it was not a good film, the second Men in Black, and I remember they did something like that where, like, a couple of the sort of, like, throwaway alien jokes, they then became, like, main characters in the film as like wacky cohorts the pug got put in a suit this is like okay well that worked as a, as a joke you know i can't decide whether cantaloupe is a really good pun or a really bad pun uh i think it's a pun it's a pun <laughs> it's either the the best pun of the lot or the the crappiest one it's a bit like a koan i can't get my brain around it yeah it's not as good as like watermelon or uh sushi Oh. Well, or is it better though? That's the thing. Is it lazy because it's a pun, but it's not really a pun, or is it is it the best one of the lot because it's the thing as well as being a pun? Mm. We we need a punologist, I believe. I think that's what we need. It's what every good podcast should have, and it's awesome. <laughs> Before this conversation devolves any further, <laughs> let us hear from the directors, Mister Cody Cameron and Chris Hearn. I suppose my first question is, with it being a sequel, um, and obviously Chris Miller and Phil Lord, they helmed a fantastic film in 2009 with the original Cloudy. You must have felt some pressure when you stepped up to the helm yourselves. Um, but, but neither of you are newcomers. I mean, you both worked on the film, the first film. Yeah, yeah we both worked on the first film, and uh, Chris and Phil came back to you know, help us kind of crack the story on the second one, so it was like getting, uh, getting the family back. And there's pressure on every movie you, you, you work on because it's always going to go out there and your friends are going to watch it. So uh, I think the, uh, the fact that we spent so much time working on Cloudy One, there was a, there was a natural kind of organic flow into the sequel. So uh, how did you come around uh, developing a new story uh, and what to add to an already complete and well-rounded tale? <laughs> 
Well, we had a we had a whole bunch of uh, of monster movie ending that we didn't get a chance to use the first time out. So if you remember, there was uh, a little bit of the uh, the gummy bears and the, the the roast chicken and the pizza slices at the end of the first film. Uh-huh. Had a whole monster movie ending where there was a giant food volcano that turned into a kraken, this kind of food monster, and Flint had to face it down. And uh, the movie was about probably an hour and a half too long. <laughs> so we had to cut it out. So when we got into the room to talk about the what-ifs for the sequel, uh, we were really excited about the idea of doing that monster movie. So the first film was really a disaster film about what was going to hit you on the head, and we, we decided to flip our genre and go into a different kind of uh, storytelling um, uh, genre, uh, more about what's in the shadows and, and uh, you know the, the, the creatures. Yeah, our monster movie kind of became a Noel Savage story. Yeah, and that kind of happened organically as we started to break Flint's story and figure out that he needed to redeem himself. Excellent. I understand, well, from looking at the art of Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, the first one, there's some similar kind of Chester V characters, like a science club. Um, Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Vance LaFleur uh, was a character in the first film that was one of Flint's science idols. He was up uh, pinned up on the wall with Einstein and Tesla, and we had scenes in the first film in which Flint was going to meet uh, Vance LaFleur uh, in Iceland, and that also kind of got subtracted from the film in the process. And so that was one of the characters that came back. We, we renamed him Chester V, uh, but the V is still a holdover for that. <laughs> That's a luck thing. You never have the same name yeah. for the character if they come back in another movie. <laughs> I mean, as story guys, was this a kind of... Uh, were you glad to relook at some of this old stuff, this stuff that you, oh, this, that you couldn't yeah. use? sequences and sometimes you're working on a sequence for two years uh, I had worked on a sequence where Flint faces off against the machine which uh, in the end of the first film it was a meatball but as Chris was saying it used to be a giant kraken head and you know Flint had to face off against these giant like food things inside the head and when that got cut out of the film there is a bit of sadness uh, most of what we do gets, you know, about 90% gets thrown away anyway, so, you, you know, it comes with the territory. But it was great to go back and explore some of the stuff we had done. It was, you know, kind of a, a nice little fulfilling bit. Right, and, and the reason we cut it from the first film is that it really did feel like its own idea. So it gave us a good kind of leap-off point. And, uh, you know, organically, uh, as you're in the room kind of riffing on ideas, it's going to evolve and change and shift around. So it's not exactly as, as it was when we... Uh, when we worked on it like six years ago, but uh, definitely inspired by it. Yeah, it just gave us a starting point, and uh, it kind of gave us confidence that we had a, a you know a, a bunch of things that we had already played with that we liked that we could start to play with again. Yeah, kind of a creative blue balls. It wasn't quite. <laughs> <laughs> Well, certainly the presenters of this podcast are. You had many characters to the story as well. I mean, as well as Chester V, you've got Barb, you've got the Pickles, you've got Berry, you know, all these new kind of, these new sort of characters to add to the to the tale. Yeah, uh, the idea with Barb is that, uh, you know, we kind of reverse engineered, you know, the idea of Steve and that Barb was something that Chester had that Flint was sort of looking towards aspirationally to, to be like. And so he invented his own version of Barb, but it was a little bit low tech. He was using a speaking spell. 
Um, and as far as the food goes, I mean, the idea with the food is that it was kind of like Flint's id. So they, they're, they're like different parts of his personality. So like the pickles are like the little masculine lost boys that are kind of uh, <laughs> left behind, but they like to do the things that Tim likes to do. So they're kind of like Flint's grandchildren. Yeah, it's like or no, Flint's children, Tim's grandchildren. Yeah, it's like uh, fishing and sardines skipped a generation that jumped over Flint and hit these pickles. <laughs> <laughs> And so, then, like Barry, Barry's kind of like his conscience, which uh, which is there to kind of lead him into the movie, and and he tries to warn Flint by swallowing the BSUSB at the beginning, and and he tries to show Flint that you know that, that there's more to the island, and of course uh, he's got a little arc two where he has to stand up and fight at the end, and um, you know there's there's a we had a lot of fun kind of coming up with the the idea of this diaspora, of this uh, this kind of food animal world. Could you talk us through a few of your favorite uh, puns, well, and creatures while developing? Uh, well, the pun process. I think uh, the water melon might be one of my favorite uh, pun combinations. Yeah, uh, that, that, that's a really fun creature. And the chief spider was uh, was a, a fun one because kinetically he kind of uh, adopted the, the the whole spider thing, um, and that kind of came out of a pun, I think, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the tricky thing with puns is once you start punning, it's hard to stop. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was uh, we had to calibrate it. With, uh, with experts to make sure we didn't get annoying with it. <laughs> <laughs> so did you find yourselves like sketching or your team sketching characters and then thinking, oh, I've put a shrimp and a, and a gibbon together. Let's call them shrimpanzees. Or was it the other way around? Uh, actually, you know, uh, Craig Kelman, our character designer, went off for a weekend and came up with about 200 of these food animal combinations. And then, uh, you know, he was doing drawings and uh, coming up with food names. And there were quite a few that, you know, were just developed during the story and the dev process. Mm -hmm. But uh, Craig really kind of spearheaded the first launch into those combinations. Yeah, and kind of gets the thought going. I mean, a lot of the food also came out of um, what we needed for the sequences. So when we were in like a breakfast sequence, we needed breakfast foods. So like the butt toad and the mosquitoes were kind of, uh, you know, how the, how those ideas kind of begin to coalesce is sort of mushy. You know, sometimes it's the cart and the horse, sometimes it's the horse and the cart. Yeah. <laughs> the chicken or the egg. I think the chimpanzee, the one that you referenced, came one of our one of our story artists came up with. Yeah. He wanted something to be swinging in the in the in the right. vines, so it was like a mechanic thing where he wanted to have that kind of animal swing through. So yeah, that was uh, Brandon. Wasn't yeah, it? Brandon came up with that one. Excellent. And then there was a lot of controversy because shrimp is kind of its own animal. So it's like, can shrimp also be a monkey and it's kind of like a skinned man? So there was a, that one was a controversial one. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure it rests easier with some people. <laughs> yeah, it looks like yeah, all his flesh has been peeled off and the muscles are exposed. It's like he's got to run away from salt. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, the film, the film, obviously we've discussed, is a sequel. And although there's all this this new richness that you've brought to it, are there any challenges that are unique to making a sequel? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, definitely trying to find uh, a character story for your leads that is, that, you know, that that's organic. That's, yeah, that's a nice evolution without kind of repaving over the same stuff we did in the first film. Yeah, and then that's just a challenge because you, you do find yourself repeating some jokes and then you have to try to find new jokes. Yeah, and you want to stay true to the characters, but you also want to have them grow. Yeah, and it, I mean, it, it's tricky also with the, with the sequel. Your ensemble tends to grow, so you start to get more characters, and that becomes something you have to manage. Uh, uh, you know, you, and, and, and I think, you know, we just we, we just muddle through it the way we do everything. You just kind of throw it up on the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. Were there uh, any particular character arcs that you felt uh, particularly proud of or that you felt that you could have worked more on or 
uh, how, how did you feel about developing these guys' uh, journeys? I, I think, I mean, one thing that, you know, I kind of like is, uh, you know, the Barry Flint relationship was a little bit, uh, I don't know, in the beginning it wasn't as much of a thing, and kind of as we developed it, it became a bigger kind of point to the story. Yeah, I mean, I feel really good about sort of where we took Sam and Flint, the fact that, you know, he kind of treats her like a weather girl in the middle of the movie and she doesn't she doesn't put up with it. Like, I like the fact that she sort of uh, has that permission to be smart and she uses her intelligence through this movie to kind of become the, 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 the first one to realize that there's more going on than, than what's what's being presented by Chester. Um, I think with Earl, it was tricky. I mean, he was, he was definitely a, you know, the, the father thing was, was hard to carry through in this story. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, you, you, you have to kind of, you know, hopefully the new characters balance some of that out. Um, I think Chester's story was definitely one that we, uh, we had a lot of fun with. Uh, we, we did have a version where we had the mayor come back and he was part of Chester's plan and we had to drop that because it got pretty creepy because the mayor was eating all these hot dogs and he was turning into a giant hot dog and Chester was using that as an experiment to see like look you know this food's so delicious that you know this consumer can't stop eating it and he's become the perfect consumer because he actually looks like the product that we're selling to him and then when he turned into a giant hot dog we could just mash him up and make him into more food bars so it was kind of that soiling green thing you know food is people too <laughs> and uh, I really like really, really like that storyline and we just didn't have a chance to kind of get it to sit in there in a comfortable way. So it'll be on the DVD. Yeah, I think the mayor's <laughs> a deleted scene, maybe. Yeah. Wow, that is dark. But uh, <laughs> it, was funny. it was really funny. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, picking these uh, hot dogs off of leaves like they're little caterpillars. They had onion feet, and he was playing whack-a-mole trying to pull them out of holes and stuff. Just kind of addicted to them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, were there any other kind of... Um story cul-de-sacs or any other concepts or creations that you had to abandon besides the, the mayor? We once uh, we once uh, went to Berry Village and we spent some time with the strawberries. Yeah, it was like a little Polynesian village full of strawberries and pineapples and coconuts. And they were kind of surrounded by a jam moat, which was, you know, a mixture of berry poo and old dead strawberries. Yeah, and they had carved uh, a giant uh, flint uh, head out of the jello mold. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that was a, it was a fun little sequence because at that point we weren't sure whether the food was good or bad and it was where Sam and Sam the gang got abducted by the strawberries, kind of like Ewok style. Yeah. And uh turns out that they were really sweet. Yeah, like and that, that scene uh, pretty much evolved into what the cheese spider scene where they yeah. come across the cheese spider. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's a, it was a brilliant set though. I think it's in the Art of Two books. Yeah. You, uh, you pick yeah. that up, it'll be there. Um, we spent more time in Pickle Village than we actually ended up using in the movie. Mm -hmm. um, there were some stuff, some sequences there that we cut that were... Uh, like Tim hanging out with the pickles and kind of becoming the pickle king. This Brian Mitzvah. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about, about the, the character of Chester V? I mean, although it's subtle, I mean, is he based on anyone? Uh, quite a few people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of, you know, there's certainly some Steve Jobs and Richard Branson, and we're making fun of like the blue jean billionaires of our era. Yeah, a little bit of Carl Sagan, uh, some Walt Disney, you know, he has a science program for kids. And The goatee came from Richard Attenborough, which yeah. is odd to Jurassic Park. He's the guy who shows up to kind of start the mission. Um, and the light bulb shape was an organic thing that kind of came out of uh, out of our character designers head. Craig Kelman was kind of coming up with the, the shape language for uh, for Chester, which ended up ended up being the shape language for Livecourse. So the hexagon and the, and the light bulb are kind of two uh, two strong shapes that, that 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 dictated his design. Yeah, the light bulb being the universal cartoon uh, symbol for a good idea, it usually pops above someone's head. Bing. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I did notice that um, when you did your talk in Annecy uh, in June this year, you showed the rig of Chester on the screen, and it and it did look. I mean, it looked entertaining. You could see the, there were some strong shapes there and things like that, which which generally underused really shape language in 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 some films. But um, seeing him move is a completely different experience. I mean, the animation in Chester V alone is mesmerizing. I mean, do you have any particular inspiration for that, or did you just create the most flexible animation rig in the world and go nuts? Flint is very floppy and moppy. He's kind of muppety, right? And he's always got this sort of kinetic overlap that, that, that carries through him. And the idea is that Flint and Chester are very much alike in terms of they're both backyard inventors. We had a whole backstory where Chester, you know, grew up in, on a farm, and, and, and he kind of had the same upbringing that Flint had, except for he never had anybody understand him, and he never learned how to kind of be part of a friendship. So uh, the idea that Chester is sort of like controlled and hyper-controlled so everything around him is, is, is like his own kind of micromanagement. So he surrounded himself with his own friends. So he, he kind of, you know, holograms came, came from that idea that he doesn't like to talk to people. He just likes to talk to himself. And so the idea that his body language is hyper-controlled, but he's kind of floppy like Flint. That, I think that was sort of the meta idea behind him. And then the animators really just kind of played with it and had yeah. fun with, with the silhouettes and the shapes. But... Uh, you know, in, in a lot of ways, a nod back to some rubber hose animation. Yeah, yeah, which is sort of like what Flint was in the first film. So the idea is that he's like Flint, but he's very hyper controlled and very uh, able to to do amazing things with his limbs. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the most. I think it is probably the most distinctive part of the film. I mean, as soon as he came on screen, uh, the film starts. You're exactly where you left off from the first film. And then this man arrives, and for somebody who studies animation, somebody who's an animation fan, you're just blown away. It's incredible. So you know, congratulations to the to the team on that one. Um, yeah, you have a lot of props to Pete Nash, you know, Hawkins, and uh, Tim Pixton for right. our, our anime leads. Yeah, and was Josh Beveridge also a lead on that as well? Uh, yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. So, um, what kind of technology was developed for the film? I mean, I believe you mentioned in Annecy something about like a tracking system that, that turned some of the vistas from CG into like a matte painting, which made the whole process easier. Yeah, it's something that the guys called depth styling, and you know, three-dimensional objects, you know, in the layout. As soon as the camera pulls far enough back to where we would use a matte painting, they actually flatten into the matte painting. So they become a flat object, which uh, helps with the zeros and ones in the render time because you have less information to render. But it also helps with creatively what we want to do with having a lot of film look like a painting. Yeah, I mean, because Cloudy One was a very, uh, uh, there was a lot of very realistic textures on flat shapes. And so we had to kind of take that into the organic world of the jungle. So we wanted to kind of have that sense as you got, as you look deep into space, the jungle started to feel like a painting because it's really a manifestation of Flint's creativity. So we wanted to kind of feel like his, his lab and the way that the lab was all manufactured. And it was all, I mean, it, it was, it was, it was artistic, so we, we, we definitely wanted to kind of keep that alive and be able to move a camera through that space, so it gave us that freedom. Excellent. And were there any other developments that, that made this film easier or any challenges that made this film particularly hard? Well, we came up with a new uh, a new uh, crowd system, which, which uh, if you watch Cloudy 1, you can freeze frame the crowds. You'll notice that Joe Town pops up every fourth person, and there's like a, most of the women all look like Fran. And uh, so we had like a handful of characters, like maybe four or five characters in the first film that we were able to reuse and kind of put different costumes on. 
Uh, on this film, Craig Kelman worked with the team, our character designer worked with the, the team over at Imageworks. He came up with five very different body shapes for men and then five different body shapes for women. And then also five heads for men and five heads for women. Right, right. And we were able to mix between them. So we were actually able to create thousands of characters. So um, the computer uh, worked as a randomizer and would spit out these various, you know, random variations. And we were able to look. And if some looked really bizarre, we could delete them and use others. But it was really amazing what, what it did. But when you watch, like, the crowd scenes in LibCore, um, uh, I mean, it's one of those things I'm not sure people even appreciate because we stare at them, you know, for uh, we watch these, these shots a billion time so you start to notice how all the little characters have their own personalities and their own their own shape language and so uh, yeah it created much a much more diverse a much more 2d crowd for a 3d movie which I'm hopefully hopefully that technology will continue through the rest of the spa projects mm. um, and then we also challenged our guys just to come up with like food stuff like we uh, we have our characters walking through syrup and that was a creative challenge that we had to you know, figure out how to make, how to scale up syrup and make it look right. Um, and the Big Rock Candy Mountain, that was a problem because, uh, you know, we have uh, light moving through moving, uh, moving prisms. And so anytime you have a shot, we have moving light that creates render time problems. So there was like uh, technology to solve that, to speed it up. Because in the first film, our jello mold sequence was the most expensive. Yeah. Uh, sequence. Each frame was about 30 hours to render a frame, and they got it down to about 11, I think, by the end of the production. In uh, fact, in Cloudy 2, we had the gang end up at the jello mold, and that made uh, our digital guys kind of white in the face. <laughs> <laughs> can't do that to us again. On this budget, we replaced it with a big rock candy mountain. <laughs> yeah, so instead of just yellow, there was all the colors for the rainbow. All the colors, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Now it looked great. Yeah. Yeah, uh, did you actually uh, fill a bathtub up with treacle and uh, syrup and, and walk through the syrup, or you know? Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, personally, but our our, uh, our head of effects, Theo Vandernoot. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, in fact, I think uh, we have uh, yeah some clips of Theo with the syrup and putting his feet in the syrup and. Yeah. Funny story with that is when they were done with the syrup, they put it in garbage bags, as you would, and, and put the garbage bags out in the dumpster, as you would, and the garbage bags didn't hold the syrup very well, so it all kind of leaked out, and so there was like this kind of uh, uh, gooey liquid leaking out of the dumpster after hours. Yeah. And the guys at ImageWorks didn't, uh, the security team didn't know what the hell it was, so they called in the fire department and the hazmat team, and the guys with their guys in yellow suits with helmets, be like, like, what is it? What is it? And they say, comedy, yeah. <laughs> the last one, the bravest one, went down to taste it. See what it was. Yeah. Wow. You might die. But it might be. He'll taste anything. <laughs> Excellent. I did notice, uh, if you forgive me, a few kind of homages uh, in some of the shots to other films. Uh, sure. Maybe, maybe there's a scene where the the wild scallions lift the heads up. Maybe that's a, a homage to some of the films. I mean, do you have any particular favorite films that you wanted to cram in here? Well, I mean, definitely there were a lot of nods to Jurassic Park. Uh, yeah. You know, as Chris mentioned earlier, Richard Attenborough's goatee on Chester, but like Sam's outfit is definitely like taken straight from Laura Dern's in Jurassic Park. Uh, you know, there's like, I mean, a little bit of Return of the Jedi, a little bit of Goonies, Gremlins, some ET nods. Yeah. I mean, the Noble Savage story. We yeah. had the whole scream thing. Yeah, was, uh, we 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 did it longer than ET. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, we were, you know, definitely influenced by a lot of the films of the in the 80s, like the George Lucas and Spielberg stuff, but also. Uh, 
You have the Can't Buy Me Love. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, I Can't Buy Me Teen Wolf. Yeah, <laughs> just roll <laughs> Teen Wolf on there, too. Yeah. Look really hard. Um, yeah. Michael J. Fox Teen Wolf, not the new MTV Teen Wolf. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> sure. Um, uh, Cloudy One, we had a lot of references. I mean, uh, I boarded the sequence with all the gasping when the burgers were coming in, and, and uh, Chris and Phil made me watch Jurassic Park again and again and again. <laughs> and if you watch that one shot where uh, where Laura Dern stands up and she pulls her glasses off, and it's like super complicated how she does it. And that's sort of where, like, like Joe Town's beard coming off. So we, we definitely had that idea running through Cloudy One, and we were making fun of, like, Towering Inferno and Poseidon Adventure. And so going into the monster movie genre, we wanted to kind of pick on movies that were more in the kind of alien. Yeah, a little bit of sci-fi. Yeah, yeah, Alien, Jurassic Park, definitely some Goonies. Brilliant. I think you just mentioned Joe Town there. He's always a nice addition. It's, it was great to see him so much in the, in the beginning of this film. Yeah, and then he couldn't speak, though, because Will Forte is our Chester V, and he was Joe Town, and we couldn't afford to have him do Joe Town this time, so Joe Town was mute in this one. Yeah, that's one of our inside jokes that Joe Town keeps trying to get into the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you voiced some things yourself, Cody. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, did the voice of Barry and Dill Pickle and some of the other like food creature stuff that was really fun did you get in on the fun chris yeah i did i did some uh some of the think we're not um i'm the guy at the beginning who does a buffering line and he gets eaten by a cheeseburger and yeah he's also uh when steve drinks the the, the mocha and livecore uh, chris is the lady that goes not too bad yourself monkey yeah <laughs> <laughs> um do you have any particular favorite sequences each of you from the film that you're particularly proud of satisfying when you're in an audience and you hear the laughs kind of land in the right spots like when uh, Barry does his translating thing Cody boarded that sequence and it's just really fun to see people catch on to what's happening you know like uh, there's a slow build to that laugh uh, um, that, there, there's a gag we did in, in Cloudy One where Sam breaks up with Flint in a syrup in a, in a, in a syrup uh, after a pancake crash on a, on a school and we didn't get it into that movie so we actually put it into this film yeah that was something you had boarded on the first film yeah so there's always like a little bit of satisfaction when you see it finally on the screen and see people laughing at it little moments like that I'm always proud when something works the way it's supposed to work like when you get the right reaction so mm-hmm. you're promoting the film heavily and I'm sure that after this you'll have a well-earned break but what's next for you guys individually and what's next for Flint Lockwood and company will we see any more of them We get to a certain point where you're itching to pick up the sketchbook again, or oh, I yeah, never stop drawing. I mean, even while we were working on this film, you know, you're still filling up sketchbooks with other drawings, other ideas. I always like to work on like kids' books and like comics and stuff, and in, in the, the downtime, so there's there's a bit of that kind of refilling of the creative well. But uh, these movies are a big deal. I mean, that's like three, four years of your yeah. life, so it's like trying to find the right project for the right. for the for the duration. It's like a little mini marriage. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you want to meet the mother-in-law. You want yeah. to kind of get a sense of how the house. You want to see what the you know what they look like in the morning. Make sure you know you made the right. One thing to get along, but how do you fight? You know, it's like. Uh... <laughs> Well, <laughs> well I'll, I'll take it from me. It made for a very happy marriage and very happy viewing. Thank you so much. I'm really glad you enjoyed it.
enjoyed the film. Very nice to talk to you, man. Yeah, and thank you very much for talking to us at Squiggly today. And we, you know, I, I urge everyone to see the film. And good luck with all your future endeavours. Thanks, thank you. Thank you so much. That was Chris Pan and Cody Cameron, the directors of Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2. Is it in cinemas now? Uh, depending when you listen to this. If you're listening to this in 2015, I don't think it's in cinemas. But uh, if you're listening to it at the end of 2013, yeah, sure, why not? It's, pro- it's somewhere. Yeah. Well, how do you rate like animation sequels in general? Uh, well, I mean, we're, we're in a kind of unusual era where we don't just get sequels, we just carry on getting films. I mean, but looking at the Shrek franchise, they kind of had to do the fourth Shrek film mm. in order to redeem themselves from doing the third Shrek film. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of, that's the kind of world that we're living in, animation world, rather. I wasn't keen on, on Cars 2 at all, and everyone in the world seems to be begging for The Incredibles 2. So it seems that what you want, you don't get. <laughs> what, you, what you don't want, you kind of get rammed down your throat. It's a, it's a weird world, isn't it? It's a, but it's a business, isn't it? You know what Finding Nemo didn't have enough of? Ellen. <laughs> they should make a sequel all about her. Yeah, we should call it Finding Dory. I don't know why I just said, I like Ellen DeGeneres. I don't know where that came from. I find her charming. Yeah. She's a natural wit. I just had a needless go at her. She was perfectly fine in that film. But now I guess Pixar do sequels better than... Well, you know who does terrible sequels is Disney. I don't know if this is still their practice, but do you remember those god-awful straight-to-video sequels they would do? Oh, yeah, the ones that they used to make in, like, Australia and Paris and stuff and then churn them out. So, like, Cinderella 3 and all that sort of stuff. Oh, Jesus. So is that what they would do? They would have, like, outsourced Disney operations in different countries? Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you, you had some really talented uh, people uh, working over there that are now big Flash animators. Who's the guy that does Bitey of Brackenwood? I, I don't know what those words mean. Adam Phillips. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, although they were just sort of like uh, places where this animation would be churned out, obviously you did have, you know, talented animators there, you know, um, Bernard Derriman, who does, uh, he did like Arjun Poopy and he did uh, the video, everyone else has, uh, has had more sex than me. I'm sure you've seen. Oh yeah, um, I remember that one. So yeah, some talented animators come from there, but they, obviously they were just sort of creating these kind of Disney sequels, as you say, which which didn't really live up to the, to the sort of standards of the originals. But um... going again back to like talking down to kids... Kids are quite observant. Like, they, they know when they're getting fleeced. And when something is presented to you and it's in a package and it has the artwork and it's like, oh, this is a sequel to a film you like. And you don't sort of think you're being kind of manipulated or, or that it's sort of a, um, a lazy ash can venture just to stretch out the profits of the first film that did well because it was quite considerate and, and quite well put together. It is kind of like saying, hey, remember that film you like? Here's a really, really crappy version of it. Here's a version where they all seem to have forgotten how to act. Mm-hmm. And the music has suddenly taken a big dip. <laughs> and um, remember how swish the magic carpet looked in part one? <laughs> it looks like dog <laughs> shit now. Yeah. Do you remember that wisecracking <laughs> character? Well, now he's got a completely different voice. Now he sounds more like Homer Simpson. You know, that was the only thing that I didn't mind too much was that if they were going to replace Robin Williams with anyone, I was glad it was Homer. 
But that was a dreadful film. You, I, Return I, of Jafar. That's such a lazy sequel idea. Oh, the guy we dispatched of, he's back now. Because <laughs> why not? Yeah. The other thing that bugged me about that one is that in Aladdin 1, probably better known as Aladdin, Jesus Christ, Ben, <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried is f***ing hysterical. Yeah. Like, as an adult, if that film is on TV, I'll settle in. Because he is brilliant. And he's not overused, and he's not overplayed. It's one of those lovely little characterful things of, like, Disney when it works really well. Because why wouldn't the parrot have the voice of an elderly, curmudgeonly Jewish man? (laughs) Yeah. Well, what about the ones that are released theatrically? I'm glad that there are some that have been released theatrically more recently and I, I you would know this actually and I'm glad I've got you on the horn <laughs> I saw a documentary a while ago or maybe it was a news report or something but it was about Toy Story 2 mm-hmm. and how their original plan I guess was to do it in the way that they did the other cheap sequels which was to knock out a cheap Toy Story story uh, and release it straight to video mm-hmm. and it got to a certain point where they I guess felt like they just couldn't release it because the story was too weak or it looked too bad or uh, do you know the whole story of this? I do know certainly that it was supposed to be released on uh, on just released direct to DVD but uh, oh, sorry direct to video this was 1999 but then they turned around and said it's I heard that it was too good and they decided to release it to theatrical release but maybe I'm hearing the Disney side of things and you've heard the actual side <laughs> side of things I don't actually know. Maybe I just, just read it differently. I think what I had read from it was that they were working on a story and it just wasn't working because they weren't putting enough effort into it. And so then they started from scratch. That was the original film. The original Toy Story was Woody and Buzz's relationship was slightly different and Woody was kind of this this kind of asshole. And, and then Jeffrey Katzenberg suggested a couple of... Uh, buddy movies to uh, John Lasseter and the team and they basically rewrote the whole film over like Ah. uh, a very short amount of time and created the film that we all know and love now and which has spawned uh, many films and uh, and shorts afterwards. Gotcha, gotcha. Well there you go, a little bit of animation history for you. Yes, you've come to the right nerds. (laughs) I do remember there was this, this very bizarre story that went sort of viral of um, someone who was working on Toy Story 2 and there was some big like technical glitch mm. that started destroying all of the files. Yeah. And it just sort of went through all their like backup and just ate away at all the files. And someone, I guess, uh, had been working on the film after hours and taking the files home with her so was able to bring them back in. So she had them all backed up. Mm-hmm. That story raises so many questions, though. <laughs> like, how? What? <laughs> like, how could she possibly have all the files just on her computer? That bit just doesn't add up. Knowing what little I know about the incredible demands on hard drive capacity that a project like that would take on. I don't. I don't know. I've. I've I don't know what what systems and and things they use. Um, I don't even know if they use Maya. Um, I've heard that story too. Apparently they were looking at the film. Uh, I don't know how they'd view it. And they were like, oh, where's, where's Woody's hat? And they were like, well, I don't know. It's, we, we probably haven't, we have, probably haven't done it. Where's, where's, Woody's, where's Woody's feet gone? And it's like, where's, where's his eyes? Oh my God, it's all vanishing. And then that's, that's what I was. Just watching him decompose. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, which is probably more terrifying than watching the Sandman. That uh, can you imagine the cold, like feeling of like cold water going down your spine when you realize something terrible is happening, but you don't know quite what it is. Yes. A couple of weeks ago, I couldn't get my color palettes to load in Toon Boom, my saved color palettes, and I nearly had a panic attack. <laughs> I yelled at an episode of Black Books that was on in the background. I felt terrible. <laughs> it was like yelling at an old beloved family dog. <laughs> I would be a complete emotional wreck if something like that happened on an actual film that, like, mattered. Not that my current job doesn't matter if my boss is listening to this. We're all mucking together. Go team! So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they would know the difference. A lot of other studios, and maybe this is being too harsh, but it seems like a lot of other studios settle for that'll do. Mm. Like, this looks shiny enough. It'll do. Oh, that's Will Ferrell. He's doing his best Will Ferrell impersonation. That'll do. Yeah. You know, and... It's like they know what they want before they set off and making the film. And they're perfectly watchable films for the most part. But they don't... You should want to think about it for a bit afterwards, you know? Um, and I think that of the studios, the studio that uh, does that the most effectively is Pixar. And what it also brings to mind, actually, is a Toy Story 3 story. This is a very Toy Story-centric podcast. But this will be the last one, and then we'll move on, kids. This was a, a talk I went to in Stuttgart, and maybe I told this story already. I was at FMX, which is this sort of parallel festival to the Stuttgart Animation Festival, and went for a couple of animation-y events, and there was a guy from Pixar talking about the Pixar uh, production pipeline, which was more interesting than I thought. He was a very good speaker in the sense that he made something that could have been quite impenetrable, penetrable and uh, demystified a lot of the process of it, but in a way that was actually quite... It was sort of a relief because it's so intimidating, like, what has to go into that kind of film from a technical point of view. But seeing it all broken down was like, oh, okay, this is actually sort of relatable to what I know about how this software works and how, you know, this approach to animation works. It's just done in a very fancy way. But he showed the development of the opening sequence of Toy Story 3. And... The first pass at that was utterly mediocre. Like, there was nothing to comment on it. You you know how Toy Story 3 in the final film begins, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's how the toys feel when they're being played with Andy, basically. And it's, yeah, it's a big adventure movie pastiche. Good stuff, full of lots of lovely little Pixar-y things. Some great stuff with, like, the, the Potato Head and Mrs. Potato Head as, like, the villains and... But the original opening was lame. Like, the original opening, which they did an animatic for, and this guy showed the animatic, it was, I think, like, literally Tom Hanks's character, Woody, like, moseying on into town, walking down one of those dirt roads in every spaghetti western. Mm -hmm. Basically, it was that scene they were doing. And then the reveal is that it's the kid playing with the two toys in a western. Mm -hmm. That sucks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's, like first idea out of the out of the head but then this is the the point they didn't stop there they acknowledged okay this is a bit weak how do we make it better so there was a variation on it and a variation on that and he showed all these different variations leading up to this really quite exciting interesting fun dynamic very densely packed opening sequence and everyone in the cinema when they see it is like okay bang we're right in and 
I just I see a lot of these other films and I just don't think there's that level of consideration toward the development of the story taking it beyond you know that'll do the uh, I think the technical term I've heard a few times is plussing it Oh, so nice. you know, if you, you've got an idea and just plus it, you know, what else can you add to it? Well, you know, without ruining it, that's the kind of. I think I've heard a, a Pixar talk or some studio talk and, and, and use the term plus in it. The thing I think that other studios do, and this is from a um, you know uh, Patton Oswalt, the comedian. Oh yeah. Uh, for uh, for the benefit of of the animation audience, he was in Ratatouille. He played the uh, the he lead. He played Remy. Yes. Um, and he's done a bunch of other animation voices, but I think he's best known as like a sort of stand-up comedian and character actor. But he does this wonderful bit talking about um, one of his jobs he has had in the industry, which is punch-up for, I think, mainly animated movies. And punch-up is when something happens and the gag doesn't necessarily have that much impact. So then one of the people off-screen says something, an extra line of dialogue that then tags the gag. And so you get these films where there's lots of stuff that have had like extra lines added and they don't have to do any more animation because part of the joke is that it's a background character doing it. Hmm. And I think that is what goes into a lot of other films. That's their version of um, uh, plussing it. Was that the phrase? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just don't think that... Uh, I mean, it's, it's very armchair criticism of me but for all i know people work very very hard and they're trying their bestest and i'm just being a mean douche with a microphone i just respect the idea of someone acknowledging that they're not doing the best job they can do and trying a bit harder and there is a whole culture at the moment of no we've put in a bit of effort you know that's all that's expected really so why really do anything else you know yeah and that works against a lot of people, I think, in the industry, even in these sort of lower totem pole roles, such as, as a lot of the work I do. It'll be for TV shows or it'll be for um, music videos or commercials. A lot of the time you get paid to do a certain thing and there's a point where you can be like, OK, well, I could garnish this a bit, not in a way to like show off or detract from what they want, but in a way that would maybe give it a bit more of a professional slickness and something that would be a sort of mark of respect, say up another hour and just mm. have something be a bit more swish, a bit more fluid or whatever. But then there's a whole other sort of mentality of like, well, I'm not being paid for that extra hour, so screw it, you know. It doesn't only just benefit you for like showreel, it, it benefits the, the audience as well, it benefits the viewer. Yeah. There's a degree to which that is a relevant concern in the sense of like if if it's a commercial for like money lending agencies or like you know cash for gold if you want to cultivate a good relationship with someone that you respect is it's a non-disingenuous way of of i think telling someone hey i'm with you guys and i i'm committed to something and the people that i know like peers of mine who are thriving at the moment are people who have sacrificed a lot of hours unpaid hours to something because they respect their higher-ups artistically. And over time, one of two things will happen. The ideal thing is that will be registered and it will be appreciated and the person who has put in the extra time will get more work mm -hmm. and will get more options for the type of work that they do within a production. That's the way I think it should be. What can also happen, and I will hasten to add it hasn't happened to me but i've seen people i like have it happen to them and it's quite upsetting 
people will acknowledge that you do extra stuff for free and so then they just take advantage and they throw oh well such and such will do it they don't mind they like spending their weekends doing extra stuff it's so and then it gets to the point where if they then don't have time to do the extra unpaid work it doesn't become like you've been doing all this extra stuff for us it's like well you've stopped doing the thing that's expected of you so you've gone down in our estimation and the type of people who will allow that to happen are the type of people who are more likely to get taken advantage of. So it is a two-way street in a lot of respects. But one of the things that should make you feel assured that you've made the right choice in your career is to be perfectly fine with doing a bit of extra work, is to be perfectly okay with mucking in in other areas, helping other people on the crew out if you have some spare time, giving people feedback, giving people, you know, a leg up if there are things that they want to learn. And then, you know, hopefully that will be reciprocated when you have things that you want to learn. If you don't feel that, if you don't feel that impulse, then, I mean, I think a part of you has to acknowledge, well, maybe I chose the wrong line of work, you know? Mm-hmm. It sounds like a very spoiled, brashish thing to say of everyone should have a job they enjoy. I get that that's not how life works. But it's a little different in the creative industries, I think, because everyone gets in, in that sort of mood. I'll occasionally catch myself going, oh, God, I've got to do all this before I go to bed tonight. And then I'll have to remind myself, all this is a bunch of drawing. And drawing is one of your favorite things to do. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and it's just this sort of mentality of like, oh, I've got to do work. Yeah, well, this is what you've been working toward, is to do more work in, in this sort of area. Yeah, you don't work down a mine for free. It's, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know, hey, that was uh, another uh, pontificating rant that probably had a foothold somewhere in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get away from the point. The Return of Jafar sucked. Although it did have a couple of good songs in it. There you go. So, on a not entirely dissimilar subject to animation sequels, an animation prequel that we brought up in the past has just come out on DVD, I think this week. Monsters University can be yours, should you so desire. Steve, is that something you desire? It is, yeah. I think I'll probably be picking up a copy of that or, you know, asking somebody for it for Christmas or something like that. You know you know how it is. I certainly do consumerism (laughs) it'll never go away until it does until money becomes meaningless (laughs) well we discussed uh we discussed the film at some length around the time we got back from annecy when we saw the uh preview screening and i think that was when it was in the cinemas it obviously did tremendously well as these types of films so often do i'm sure it will make the perfect something filler for whatever thing you celebrate that warrants gift giving around this upcoming seasonal time of year yes it's also part of the well not surprisingly part of the uh, long list that the academy award have uh, recently announced uh you know the long list for the best animated feature and what a long list it is it is 19 of them oof man on yeah that's uh that's just too many 19 animated features up for the oscar Heck, we have an article about this very subject that went up last week. So you can uh, have a look at all the the films up for an Oscar or, well, up for an Oscar shortlist. Whatever this godforsaken process is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, we don't work for the Academy, so whatever. 
this resentment fuel <laughs> this this tool to get one's artistic hopes up only to smash them to yeah. smithereens His dream smasher such as the the nature of this hideous hideous <laughs> industry that i aspire to be a part of and boy howdy when i'm ever in that position am i gonna bend over and play that game <laughs> Yeah. So don't confuse this derision with actual integrity. I'm going to do the old presto changeo flip my attitude around if I ever have to kiss yeah. the old ass. I've never confused anything that you've said or done with integrity, Ben. Don't you don't have to worry. <laughs> you don't have to worry there, mate. Well, that's a tremendous <laughs> relief. Yeah. So out of these uh, 19, 18 will find their dreams crushed. Uh, we've put up a poll, so if you want to go on to the the article and vote for your favourite one. It means nothing. It doesn't It doesn't affect anything. But, you know, get your opinion across. I mean, at the moment we're recording this podcast, Monsters University is ahead. Now, whether or not that's because people want to see it win or because people just think that it's going to win, you know, because it's a Pixar film and Pixar usually do well at these things, is uh, is not for me to say because obviously I haven't voted so many times. Uh, but, yeah, a few of the, the favourites here. We've got Monsters University, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2, uh, Despicable Me Too, Ernest and Celestine, uh, and The Wind Rise, and then every other one are in like, you know, 3%, you know, 2%, 1%, stuff like that. Any particular favourites for you, Ben? I'm rooting for Turbo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I'm being honest, I think, yeah, probably of the ones I've seen, you know, Monsters You just seemed the most fun. Although it was... You know, it, it, it's interesting. It, it, they're family films for the most part, and family films tend to not veer away from, you know, safe territory. Mm -hmm. Whereas I have a suspicion, looking at some of these other films, they might have something a bit more substantial to say. Yes. And that is that is literally based on the primary stills associated with their respective YouTube trailers. <laughs> but, you know, just that they're outside of a certain audience and a certain um, mainstream production universe they mm. tend to sort of rely more on stories that are a bit more substantial stuff like Chico and Rita and Persepolis in the past um, you know yeah but uh, we'll see good luck yeah. to everyone hope you you all have a, a rollicking good time but let's be honest Monsters University is going to win on that note <laughs> Yeah, should we speak to the winner? We? <laughs> I can always go back and re-edit this if they don't win it. So <laughs> it's always good to have a backup plan, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we've got an interview here with uh, with Dan Scanlon, uh, the uh, director of uh, Monsters University. He also uh, he also works on the the story and screenplay. Uh, yeah, so a fascinating chat here about uh, about the you know the world of uh, the Pixar and, and Monsters University and everything else. Are you looking forward to it, Ben? I can't wait. On with the interview. Uh, welcome to Squiggly. How are you? Oh, good. Thank you. It's uh, it's an honour. <laughs> I'm sure it certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose my my first question is to do with the story, which uh, which you were a huge part of, story and screenplay as well as direction. The first film was very much about Sully and his relationship with, with Boo. And this film's more about Mike. Was that always the intention from the start? You know, I think early on we had talked about Mike's story first. That was the first idea that really bubbled up and was kind of the, the heart of the movie. This idea that Mike would be a character who um, experienced a failure in life and moved on and, and had it lead him to something else. We loved that idea. But uh, there was a time where... 
we second-guessed ourselves, which is often the case, and we thought, well, maybe this should be Sully's movie, since he was the, the, the lead in the first film. And, you know, we went down a lot of roads trying to give him a story, but uh, the truth is Mike's story just always trumped Sully's emotionally, and I think at some point we realized we always want to lead with the character that you're most emotionally invested in. And so after, you know, two years of, of trying Sully as the lead, we, we finally switched back. Sometimes you you have to sort of quiet your logic brain and just follow your heart. Yeah, brilliant. Was it difficult to write Mike and Sully as rivals and, and to keep a kind of a certain amount of tension in the film? Because we all know that Mike and yeah. Sully become these best friends. Uh, we've seen that in Monsters, Inc., um, but was it, uh, you know, was that a difficult kind of, uh, to keep that sort of tension up? Yeah, you know, story is always the hardest part of anything. Prequels are particularly hard because I think you have to, you have to acknowledge right away that the audience knows the end. You can't, you can't ignore it. You can't hide from it. And But I do think you can tell a story where knowing the end, or at least thinking you know the end, um, helps with the drama of the story. Certainly in the story of Mike, uh, headed toward a failure, I think it's kind of nice that the audience knows, oh boy, he's he's really excited about this dream, but I know it's not going to work out. However, I don't know what that's going to look like. And I think with the, in the case of Mike and Sully's relationship, uh, we do know they're going to be friends, but I still think there's fun in seeing how different they were and how, uh, you know, how unlikely it seemed that they would come together based on who they were when they were, you know, 18 or 19. In the same way that I think it's fun to sort of hear the story of how your, you know, your your married couple friends met, you know what I mean? You, you still get kind of wrapped up in it. And, and luckily, I think having John and Billy back to play the, the characters, um, I think that they made the arguing fun. You know, we, we worried about whether it would be enjoyable to watch these two not get along. But after the first session with the two of them, I thought, oh, you know, it's fun just to watch these guys kind of their, their banter, even when it's uh, slightly negative. How, how excited were they to be back on board? They both seemed very excited. You know, Billy in particular, he he's really, he said that this is one of his favorite characters to play. And so I think both of them were excited. Plus they, um, they really like each other. They like working together. And as much as we could, we would record them together because the, you know, the just level of the performances was even better because they were having fun. They were, they were making each other laugh or even in the emotional scenes, they were really playing off each other. And um, so I, I think they really enjoyed it. You know, that and the characters are slightly different in this film. They're the, the 18 year old version of themselves. And so I think for John and Billy, it was kind of a kick to, change the characters a little bit and uh, for, for Billy to be a little more studious and and, um, and even a little more serious at times. He really had to carry the film and, and really, you know, bust out his acting chops, which was great. And for John to be almost kind of a lovable jerk, you know, to, to have this bravado, um, I think I remember John saying, yeah, I, I know this, this guy, like I was this guy in college. I, I remember being 18 and thinking I, I knew everything about the world. Mm. Yeah, it certainly comes across with the, the, the sort of character development and things like that. But was there ever sort of any point where you were nervous about adding this, this kind of extra layer of history between the characters? When we decided to really go with the fact that Sully was kind of an arrogant kid or a cocky kid, we certainly got pushback, even amongst ourselves, of people thinking, no, Sully is the sweetest guy in the world in Monsters, Inc. Like, I don't want to... 
I don't want him to be anything but that. But I think it, it, we we realize no, this is this is the right way to go because uh, number one in Monsters Inc, he is a really sweet guy, but he's he's really playing off of Boo. And when you take her out of the film, he becomes kind of a boring guy because you know a really nice guy isn't always the most interesting character. And I always felt like, but isn't it better to know that someone changed, like that that even even a a young, immature, which we all were at one point, uh, kind of cocky person can become a great person and that his friend can actually help him become a great person. And, and so I think once people started to see how we were handling it in the movie, they realized, oh, th- this actually works better. It's, it's nicer to know that Sully is who he is in the first film because of his relationship with, with Mike. But, you know, at the time when we first started, it was... Uh, you know, it was it was dangerous to mess with that, but I think that you can't be precious with characters when you're making a sequel or a prequel. They need to change and they need to go on journeys. And so I think where you get into trouble with those kind of films is if you're too afraid to to let the characters learn and grow. And I, I think it's it's something that we we love to do here is to, to take big risks. Was it was always the case that they were going to go back to school, or was a sequel? Uh, was it going to be a sequel instead of a prequel, or? Uh... What kind of ideas and possibilities was explored, um, aside from the sort of Circle 7 stuff that was, uh, I'm sure, nothing to do with Pixar? When Pixar first started to talk about it, I think uh, we got together in a room and threw out some ideas. I think it was probably going to be a sequel for about an hour until we realized that we just weren't getting excited about those particular ideas. And then this idea of a prequel came up. And, and again, it it really came out of this desire to want to tell a story where we got to learn more about their their relationship. And we thought, we really want to do something with these guys' relationships. And that's when the idea of, well, let, let's watch it form. That would be a great, you know, it's, there's such a sense of a history of it in the first film. And, and of course, that led to college, which we just thought, that's the perfect way to kind of, it's a world we wanted to see, a, a, a monster world we wanted to see was sort of the, the college life, you know, to, to see another institution outside of the factory. And um, uh, so so really, the talk of a sequel was really very brief until we all kind of latched onto this idea and got excited. That must have been an exciting moment, because it obviously carried the film right the way through. The, the exciting moment about getting an idea like that was, you know, was also the Mike story that I mentioned earlier. I think that's what really made us go, this is the story we want to tell, because we're always looking for humor in our movies and a world we want to live in but we're also really looking for what's the point what's the emotional point of the film and so i I think it was an exciting moment because we realized we're excited about this this story about mike but then also we're drawing all these goofy college gags in the meeting and so we're like okay this is a a world that that's going to give us a lot to play with nice uh were there any parts of the the final film that went unexplored in the pre-production process or any kind of avenues that you wish to explore or, or anything that you kind of regret not putting in the film? Yeah, you know, uh, one nice thing about these movies taking forever to make is uh, is you get a lot of opportunity to explore stuff. And, and there may be gags, jokes here or there that you thought were funny and had to cut because they didn't work with the story. But honestly... I think because we all want the story to work well, and that's the first goal, um, I usually don't have too much regret about any of that. I'd never want to put something in the movie that didn't belong. So, yeah, it's amazing. And also, when you're the director and you're watching the film over and over again, you really get a lot of opportunities to make corrections and things. So, so you really get to 
to dot every I and cross every T. So I don't know that there's any big things that I regret necessarily. Mm. Is there any kind of ideas that um, that you would like to have explored, like different character traits, different parts of the university, anything like that? Not necessarily character traits. I mean, we we had developed a lot in the university, and but at some point we realized, wow, we, you know, we can't go off on these tangents necessarily. There's um, there's a lot of stuff on the Blu-ray that's uh, just coming out, and uh, which is sort of scenes where we had to, you know, deleted scenes from the film. Uh, we had one that we thought was really cool, and it was all about how monsters sneak in and do recon to find out about kids. You know, Mike and Sully are handed those dossiers in Monsters, Inc., where they, and in Monsters, you, where they have the information about the kid, and they even have a photograph of the kid, and we were like, well, how did they do that? And we had this whole idea of these little monster flies that buzz in and go around and, and gather information. We're like, that's really cool, and we'd even talked about starting the movie with it. And, you know, as is always the case, we're like, that's really cool. It has nothing to do with the movie, <laughs> you know? And so we had to... We had to cut it out. So there, there's fun exploration like that, and I think you can see a lot of it on the on the Blu-ray. But I think you also realize, oh yeah, that that really wouldn't have fit into this this movie. Mm -hmm. Given the advancements made in CGI since the first film, um, did you ever feel yourself reining in any stylistic or design choices during the like animation pre-production process? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we. You know, 11 or so years had passed and we could do so much more now. We wanted the movies to, to look good together, to look like they were part of the same world, but we also didn't want to intentionally not take advantage of what we could do. And I, I think that the sort of middle ground we found was to, to you know, push the world as far as we could push it and really take advantage of all the things we could now do, but to keep the character design simplified, to keep the character design and the theory behind the character design, these sort of deceptively simple shaped characters and colored characters that was developed, you know, for the first film. And just keep that theory in mind. We didn't want to suddenly have these very detailed, crazy characters, you know. Um, so I think, yeah, again, I think it was keeping their, the, the actual monster's colors in that simple palette and also... Uh, keeping their, their designs somewhat, again, deceptively simple. And then we could really push the world around them, even push the textures on the monsters. It felt like as long as we kept it in that box, the two worlds would match up. Mm -hmm. I Even specialist builds, I know you had a kind of system for background characters, but specialist builds such as the, the librarian a character and things like that, they really kind of fit in just as well. Yeah, and, and yet still, you know, texture-wise and all things, they're, they're pretty pushed, but we're always trying to go back to this very simple uh, shapes, you know, that the first film was built off of. Just a quick one for the kind of uh, more pedantic people out there. A few fans have picked up on a comment made in Monsters, Inc., uh, where Mike and Sully mentioned being at school together or, or kindergarten together. Mm -hmm. For the sake of those people, what's your take on that? Oh, yeah, yeah. So that was, you know, definitely when we came up with the college idea, we then were reminded of that line. And, uh, you know, when you talked earlier about uh, were there any things you tried that didn't quite work out, that was one of them. And, and, and you'll, you'll actually be able to see on the Blu-ray, we included um, a deleted scene where we tried for several years to try to uh, do a version of the movie where Mike and Sully meet in the fourth grade to honor that line and then go ahead and sort of re-meet in college. And although there was some entertainment to it, 
after years of struggling with it, we realized that we were really hurting the movie, both movies, really, by trying to wedge in this idea that, that didn't really matter to the story. And it, it actually made the story feel like it was starting over again, or you felt like you were missing the promise of the movie, which was to watch these guys get to know each other. When you, you know, when you would just watch them meet as children and then sort of like jump ahead in time, it felt like, well, I, I missed half the relationship. So in the end, we had to make a tough decision saying that, uh, you know, the spirit of that line was only put in there, you know, the line was only put in there uh, to suggest that these guys had known each other a long time. And they, I think we all really felt that knowing each other in college is still a long time. So although it's not accurate, it doesn't hurt the story beat, which is always sort of the most important thing. So yeah, we, we've joked a lot that that's just an old monster expression. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been jealous of my good looks since the fourth grade. But, uh, but yeah, um, no, lots of people brought it up. We, we definitely gave it a shot. We've definitely talked about it and, and it'll be fun for people to see what, and, and even to see why it didn't really work when they when they see the Blu-ray. Right. The film is obviously a worldwide smash. Uh, it's gone around the world. And uh, But whilst on your kind of promotional travels, did you notice certain parts of the film playing better or worse in different countries? Or, or are there any parts of the film, obviously it's a very entertaining film, but any mm-hmm. parts of the film that certainly have like global appeal? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think we had some concerns early on about an American college and whether or not that would you know resonate with with everyone and especially sort of fraternities and sororities and i was really pleasantly surprised that it 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 really did seem people did seem to understand it even if they hadn't been to a a university uh there have been so many other films on the topic and and a lot of times i realized well that was my experience of an american university was from films Uh, the one i went to was an art college and it looked nothing like there was no sororities or fraternities and i think it's sort of a a thing that we're all aware of and and I, I also think that um, the inclusion of sororities and fraternities was really more uh, as teams in a sporting event, and so I think people really got that, which was which was nice. But the thing that made me the happiest was uh, across the board, everywhere we went, it really felt like people connected with the story of Mike and and, and the idea of how sometimes these these failures in life really are the thing that detour you to something. Uh, far better to to help you sort of discover what it is you're really great at, and I was really happy to see that people um, felt that that was a message they hadn't seen much in movies before, and that it was something that inspired them or that they related to. Something which Pixar do very well is the kind of final twist, where mm-hmm. it's not quite a leading where you think it's leading, and the kind of lesson learned at the end about hard work and stuff. I thought that was a real kind of a, a, a brilliant addition to the film. Uh, I'd congratulate you on that. I thought that was excellent. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think that's always what we're kind of striving for, as, as I mentioned earlier, so I'm really glad. Mm-hmm. Did you have any particular favorite scenes uh, or parts of the film yourself? Oh, yeah, I've, I've got a bunch of them. I mean, I think I think the opening of the movie means a lot to me because I think the opening of any movie is exciting. I, uh, the, it's so hard to, to open a film. You've got so much work to do to, to teach the audience about the world and the character and, and re, in this case reintroduce the character and learn new things about him and also to hopefully fall in love with his dream. It was a sequence we worked over and over again on and rewrote over and over again and I'm so happy with where it landed that I mean I've watched this movie a thousand times way more than that and that opening scene I I can always get excited about. I, I always want to watch it. I, I feel like it, it, it's one that really sticks with me.
That, that's something that, that kind of crosses my mind, is if you're a director and you're going through this and you're watching this film every single day, you're going through rushes, you're going through, you know, going up to animators' desks and seeing the minutiae of everything, can you still get excited about it? And that's that's fascinating to hear. But yeah, yeah you know, it's a great question. And in my opinion, I can always watch the movie and get excited about it if there's one thing different in it. Meaning, you know, you're constantly checking the movie against these changes you make to try to, you know, you're trying to solve a puzzle. It's like a Rubik's Cube. And, and I think it's true with everybody involved at Pixar, the story artists, everybody, editorial. We've watched the movie so many times, but if we know, yeah, but we changed one thing about the beginning or one thing about the end. So how does that affect the whole story? I think as long as that game is there, and even when you're, when the story is in a slightly better place and you're animating and you're lighting, there's always like, well, how's that going to affect my experience of the movie? I think where it gets a little tricky <laughs> is when the movie is done. Then suddenly you kind of go, and I do love the movie, but I, I felt like, okay, I'm not changing anything anymore. I, I do kind of want to stop watching it for a little while and put it aside and put it on the shelf and, and then and hopefully watch it, you know, years later. But, but I really do think it's that desire to solve a problem that yeah. makes everybody here, and I would imagine any director anywhere, it gives them the, the sort of stamina to, to keep watching. So um, we talked about the rich, the rich universe that the monsters inhabit. I mean, what is next for this universe? I mean, will there be a retirement home? Will there be, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, is there anything? Yeah, I know. If it took us 12 years to do the first one, it should be a, a 20 summer. Uh, no, you know, we really don't know. We, we haven't, uh, there's been no talk about doing anything else in the monster world, and We'll have to kind of wait and see and, and see if that happens or not. So what's next for Dan Scanlon? You know, I don't really know that either. I'm Corey Ray, my producer and I are, are um, in development, and uh, which really means just kind of staring at a wall in your office and trying to think of ideas. Um, and, uh, and we'll see what comes out of that, if, if anything comes out of that. Excellent. So it's mystery all round for, for monsters and for yourself. <laughs> So, Dan Scanlon, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I'm looking forward to getting hold of a copy myself and enjoying Monsters University again. Oh, thank you. It was really fun. That was Dan Scanlon, director of Monsters University, now out on DVD. So also on the DVD will be the Pixar short, The Blue Umbrella, which uh, preceded the movie. Uh, You can listen to an interview with the director of that, Sasha Unseld, On our earlier podcast, episode 14, check out the podcast feed at squiggly.co.uk and uh, you can always subscribe on iTunes if you haven't yet. So yeah, good stuff. What else? What else? I don't know if there's what else. Shall we just uh, roll credits then? Yeah. What a lovely podcast that was. Don't you agree, Stephen? I agree. I'm just sad to see it end. I agree. I, I, I like how you're so agreeable. I agree. Thank you very much to the directors of Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2, Chris Pern and Cody Cameron. Thank you very much also to the director of Monsters University, now out on DVD, Mr. Dan Scanlon. And also, of course, Mr. Adam Elliott, That was one of my favorite interviews in Squiggly history so far to date. So I'm very, very glad to have the excuse to have brought that out. The Squiggly podcast is presented by myself, Steve Henderson and Ben Mitchell. It is edited and produced by Ben Mitchell. 
with music by Wesley Allard and Ben Mitchell. If you want to catch myself on Twitter, you can at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson. If you wish to catch Ben on Twitter, at Ben L. Mitchell. And if you want to catch up with all the, the squiggly goodness, you can catch us on Twitter at Squiggly. You can catch us on Facebook, which is Squiggly Magazine. It's also worth mentioning we have a, a, a website. It's squiggly.com. But you probably already know that at this stage. So thank you very much for listening to this podcast and uh, we'll see you next time. We certainly will. We certainly will.